Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 81 of Through the Years, the podcast reviews Ring of Honor, show by show from the beginning. My name is Trevor Dane. The other voice you will hear, as always, is Matt Feuerstein. Matt, we are recording this on the day that uh, some people, if you're looking online, some people seem to think this is going to be the final Ring of Honor show ever. Ring of Honor weeks ago claimed it would not be, but I mean... Final Battle 2021, I forgot what year it is for a second, Um, people are, uh, you know, certainly acting like it might be the end. I feel kind of guilty because a day or two ago you said, you know, well, should we watch, do we, should we watch Final Battle or record the show? And I was like, well, it's not really the end of Ring of Honor. And now, like a day later, everyone is treating it like it's the end of Ring of Honor. Well, maybe we'll have the last laugh. (laughs) Ha 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 No, it's it's sad. I um, you know, we uh, we spent a lot of time. We spend a lot of our lives talking about and watching Ring of Honor, so it means a lot to us. Um, but I'm going to avoid spoilers for Final Battle and watch it. Um, I do and fully intend to watch it, so I'm not I'm not shirking my duty as a Ring of Honor boy to watch the show. Um, but we have got happier and more unforgettable moments to discuss. I don't actually think it's more unforgettable, but that is the name of the show we're discussing. So that's why I said that for the record. Yeah. Also like, um, I might not watch the final battle. I mean, I just, uh, you know, it, it's not my ring of honor, Matt. Not that I haven't watched ring of honor post the era we cover, but you know, it's, it's the brand name. And there's a part of me that's like sentimental and like, Oh man, this sucks. But at the same time, it's like the company I was really in love with passed away many years ago. Sure. I understand. I understand that mindset. I, um, I don't fully feel the same way. I, um, I like this the company that I like was really really in love with. Yeah, it's changed a lot, but I still feel the connection to the uh, I guess the lineage that this uh, the current whatever it is represents. I've I've been really mad at current ROH a lot of the time at different points over the past 10 years and really dislike the parent company a lot. Um but it does seem like they've lost some power which takes a little bit of the sting out of supporting ROH. Now, you know what I mean? And, and just they're, they're, they do seem to have a lot of good people like in the ROH part of the company. You know what I mean? Like like people that I find like, you know, Ian Riccoboni, for example, just people that yeah. I, I find admirable and like want to support. So I um, so I'm very interested to see what they do. I'm also interested to see how much homage they pay to um, to the era that we're discussing. I mean, this is still that's still the ROH era that creates the most. uh emotional feelings for i think the audience and it's the the legendary period so i um you know the sapolsky era of roh i guess for lack of a better term and even you look on twitter and gabe is very uh you know seems very sentimental today also and you know that 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 uh makes me feel a little bit more sentimental also Maybe I'm just bitter that they didn't ask us to come out in the middle of the show and just be like from the award-winning Ring of Honor retrospective podcast through the yeah. years and have everyone like throw tomatoes at us and boo and go, who are these two? No, we could uh, we could have like um, you know we could have like introduced like ROH legends like you know how like in like some of like, the old WWF pay per views like in like St Louis they'd be like let's bring out Sam Mushnick and so like <laughs> we could have done that we could have been like brought yeah. out Gabe Sapolsky and um. 
you know, um, not Rob Feinstein. And, um, <laughs> wouldn't want to, just wouldn't want a part of that. That's just, There's just an empty chair. <laughs> and we just say, you know who this would be for. But, 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 but you know, Carrie Silkin, uh, you know, he's, he deserves a moment and, uh, yes. you know, the, the, the whole gang and, you know, it could be us hosting and everybody would love it because it's us and, you know, the entire crowd at Final Battle knows exactly <laughs> who we are and they all listen exactly. to this show. Um, and if you can't get enough of us, Matt, we did yet another podcast that is not our own between the last show and this one. We were finally the crossover happened. We were on the An Honorable Mention podcast with Jeff Schwartz. Uh, Shane Hagedorn is apparently too busy doing things like his just announced project that was just announced online today as we record this um code of honor he is writing a book with jonathan snowden about the history of ring of honor congrats to shane on that um but yeah we were on an honorable mention with uh, jeff schwartz and we talked for i believe over three hours and it was just kind of about various topics about ring of honor so if you can't get enough of us talking about ring of honor that is up for free on on his their feed. You know, you also learn a lot about us if you listen to that podcast. It was uh, yeah, it was really a lot of fun. Like it was it was different, and 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 I and I really really liked it, and I think it was a very positive experience. And I would love to go back, and we will be having Jeff Schwartz on our podcast in uh, in the future for sure. Um, and we we thank uh, we thank him ext- uh, very very much for having us on the show, and we thank Shane too. And I am so excited for that book. I. Uh, you know, I've thought there should be a Ring of Honor book for a really long time, and I think a lot of people, you know, I think, you know, their podcast and our podcast, I think, we're doing some important work as far as, like, you know, we, I want people to know what a big deal this promotion was and why. And, you know, you sort of are starting to hear more and more people kind of allude to ROH in this era, you know, even on AEW TV sometimes about, uh, like, the influence that it had, but... You know, I think there's a whole. I mean, it's been so long. I think there's a whole generation of fans that just don't really know what a, like how influential yeah. it was. You know, ECW got the documentary treatment. It got books. It has you know the the fans chanting in in w, on WWE TV. You know, still for ECW. So it's like R. I still think ROH was really close to has influential in its own way. Um, I really do. I mean, it was a different era, so it wasn't as big or as popular, but. I don't think anyone should sleep on how important ROH is. So I'm really, really happy to uh, to hear that Shane is writing that book. I think he's the right person for the job, and I am super excited to read it. Absolutely. And uh, the only other plug I always have to give – I, I don't have to give. I just do it. Uh, is we have three different ways you can listen to us. So You have, to give, you have to give that plug or else I'm not paying you. <laughs> so as usual we have just the through the years feed which is throh which is a feed that is just our show there is also the pro wrestling only feed because we are on a podcast network with a bunch of other great podcasts and then finally we are also on youtube so we have uh three feeds no waiting you can get to us a million different ways by a million i mean three and so with that, Matt, we get to the show itself, except I have one single kind of minor piece of news that for some reason was in my news research file between the last show and this show, even though this show literally took place the day after the last show we're covering chronologically. But this is from the Wrestling Observer at the time, Matt. 
Kenzo and Hiroku Suzuki came up to Ring of Honor looking for work. Suzuki is way too big and also not good, which makes him basically all wrong for Ring of Honor. <laughs> if, he, if he is used, it would be more, it would more likely be for an outside the ring bodyguard role. Of course, nothing ever came of this, but I do like the th- idea of, oh, he's not, he, he, he's all wrong for Ring of Honor because he's not good as opposed to, I guess, other, co- I mean, I guess I kind of know what, Dave is saying, which is like in other companies, a lack of in-ring skills would be maybe more. You could cover that up or that might not always be what their their, their number one trait. But just the idea of, oh, he's all wrong for this company because he's not good at his job. Like, OK. Yeah, well, he's, um, he's not he's not a good worker, which is what ROH was was all about. Whereas, you know, like I don't think any other promotion was what that what you know, as, that was as crucial to uh to a wrestler's success was their, um, you know, working ability. So yeah, he was not a good fit. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. To, it's fine just to think about him asking, even. But I mean, hey, no harm in asking. But uh, exactly. That brings us to the show we are covering today: the second half of the Kenta Kobashi double shot. Unforgettable took place October 2nd, 2005 at the National Guard Armory in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in front of a reported crowd of 800 fans, which. Little bit disappointing, you could say. Um, we'll go to the observer for this. Dave wrote, the only negative about the show is while the people who were there were thinking it was the ultimate and New York did sell out with people standing everywhere. There was open space. The second night in Philadelphia drew about 800 fans, which is significantly less than prior Ring of Honor shows had done with Kaiji Muto and Jushin Liger, both who had had many appearances in their prime on WC, on WCW television, what they drew. And um, Dave adds, they aren't returning to Philadelphia until April, as the feeling is the city is burned out. Now, actually, I don't know if Dave was just wrong about the dates or if they changed their plans, because, of course, they would be back in January. But, um, yeah. It was, it, was, it, was a, it was a bigger audience than the previous two Philly shows, though. I will say that. So, I, um, so you know, it's, it's all about, um, you know, like what your, what your baseline is, you know, it was obviously much lower than, you know, their peaks in Philadelphia, but those Philly shows hadn't been doing so great lately. So this was up from that, but as we'll talk about soon, nowhere near the heights they would soon achieve in Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, final battle, uh, 2003 with uh great Muda that drew well over a thousand, I believe. And that wasn't Philly, but to be fair to the comparisons, I mean, the Jushin Liger shows, they did not run Philly. They ran uh, New Jersey and Boston. So it's not a one-to-one comparison there. It is funny in the sense of, um, what was I going to say? Oh yeah. Remember when we covered the last Ring of Honor show that happened in Philly, Matt? It was the show with, uh, Christopher Daniel, CM Punk in the main event homecoming in the 60 minute draw. And that was that show that we read a lot of live reviews and stuff where people were complaining because there were so many like screwy heel finishes and a 60 minute draw in the main event. And I believe the story at that time that Gabe was giving what the, the said was like, he thought he could get away with all of that stuff because we have Kenta Kobashi for the next Healy show. So it doesn't matter if we kind of do things that might bother the crowd on this time because everyone will be here for the Kenta Kobashi show. And well, again, it did do, you know, good by the stance of recent Philly shows. It was not the gigantic, you know, crowd you may be by Ring of Honor, you would hope for like a thousand plus. And I part of me wonders if maybe that had anything to do with it. I don't think so. I, I strong, and, I strongly feel that it did not. But that's just my opinion. 
and the other thing I was just going to say is, do you, uh, I wonder if there's any, um, something to what the theory that Dave seems to be kind of floating there, which is the idea of Liger and Muda, you know, they both were in WCW, not all oh, Muda for a year or so, but like, you know, Liger didn't have like big long stretches, but they were, you know, there is a certain cachet of being on American TV where Kento Kobashi is an absolute legend, but he was never, you know, on television in America in any way. So I wonder if that since he did maybe, I, I mean, I, I can, I don't, I, I don't think, I don't think it's any of that. I think yeah. it was just Philly was burned out and they needed the CZW feud to respark it. And if they had a bigger building in Manhattan, they would have, you know, broken a record. I think like that's, that's how I feel about Kobashi. I think people were extremely excited to see Kobashi. Uh, I just think it was a timing issue. Yeah. And it's the sad thing too, about the way they had to schedule it because yeah, like you were just saying, um, even the um, New York would have been like, they could have fit more people in there. It was, you know, crammed in. It was completely sold out where in Philly, it technically drew slightly more than New York. I believe, Cause I think New York, we were saying it was like 700 people. So this is a hundred people more, but it's just a much bigger building that they had more seats available. Right. But it is technically the bigger show in that sense. So uh, we open with Prince Nana and Jimmy Ray backstage Rafe's chest is still all marked up from his match with Roderick Strong the night before. Nana's talking about how he can't believe Jade Chung slapped him after all he did for her. He fed her. He gave her a place to stay. He put clothes on her. He tells her to enjoy every moment of her freedom now because the man who brought her into this business will take her right back out of it. Uh, he says the embassy will be stronger. He says Abyss and Alex Shelley are in Ghana training with the Lions. Uh, Rave, Jimmy Rave then says uh, that they're not, they're going to take Generation Next out one by one. They're not even going to make it to Steel Cage Warfare, and then Nana guarantees it. So, quick little promo here with your usual flourishes from Prince Nana with training with the Lions. And uh, next we get a Claudio Castagnoli backstage promo. Claudio says, Ring of Honor is great. The only thing it's missing, the only thing it needs is him. He talks about beating Colt Cabana on the last show, calling it a first step for him. Claudio ends by speaking some Swiss, which he immediately translates for us by saying it it works out to never question Claudio Castagnoli. Matt, in my notes, I just wrote, Claudio was not a good promo at this point. Yeah, I wrote that too. He's not a great promo. But he does say one thing that I thought was kind of funny. He says that, Wherever he goes, he will race to the top. And that ends up being the name of the tournament that Claudio wins two years later. Wow. That's an interesting little coincidence. I didn't even yeah. pick up on that. Wow. Or, or huh. either a coincidence or somehow Gabe remembered that promo. <laughs> or Gabe is, and, Gabe is actually Gabe Doe. Like, cause much like Gato, he books two years in advance, which no, I don't actually think he does that, but yeah, at least not that. Um, I mean, he wasn't booking that two years in advance at the very least. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that brings us to the opening match on the show, the Ring of Honor Tag Team Title Match. Sal Renaro and Tony Mameluk, the new champions as of the night before, they successfully defend the titles when they defeat the Ring Crew Express of Dunham Marcos via pinfall in six minutes, two seconds, when Tony and Sal double-pinned Dunn after botching their finisher. Because it looked, like, it appeared to look like um, they were trying to do the same move they won the night before, which was like the double-team one-wing angel where they get their opponent on each each on one shoulder of each of them and then just drop them down into the move and instead they just kind of collapse and uh dunn falls and 
it just looks, I don't know how, why it went wrong, but it looks horrific and it just ends the match in a real wet fart of a finish, even though I hate that phrase. It's the best way to describe it. Uh, Matt, what'd you think about the match other than the flatulence? You hate that phrase because you don't like anyone using wet fart in a negative way because you love them so much, right? Oh, God damn you, Matt. Um, but, um, <laughs> yeah, and this match, you know, it's they were trying to get the the new tag team champions off to a start. Like, you could tell that, like, at least at the beginning, they wanted them to get over as tag team champions. I don't know that having them against Dunn and Marcos, like, was the way to do it, because um, Dunn and Marcos were definitely on the down slope um, in terms of ROAs. They really hadn't had they hadn't been on a show in a while and uh, now they suddenly get tag team t- a tag team title match and it's the opener and you know there really wasn't much story to this match they just they they did a bunch of moves like you know this, they were trying to get Renaro and Mama Luke's I guess shtick over Renaro rode a bicycle to the ring and he it had a basket which he kept the belt in which I don't know I kind of liked I guess um they also got a pretty good pop going out but it was mostly a lot of moves, and the finish wasn't the only one that was uh, botched. Like, there was one point where Dunn tried to, like, do a wheelbarrow with Marcos into giving Arana to Mamaluke, and Mamaluke powerbombed him. But, like, they both sold, like, equally. So, like, was it supposed to be a reversal? Like, it's, it was really confusing. At one point, Dunn hit a really rough-looking gory bomb on Renaro for two. Um, the tag team champions, they did some of their, um, their new double team stuff. They do like the, a Russian leg sweep, neck breaker combo, um, things like that. Um, you know, and the, Donna Marcos kind of hit us some of their signature stuff, assisted sliced bread. They almost messed up the assisted senton, but they end up hitting it, um, for two. And then, like you said, the finish was, was really weird. Like uh, they dropped, they dropped done in this really weird way. And they got the win. I, I guess they were entertaining spots, but it was just like, it was just really messed up in a lot of ways, and they didn't really do too much with it. So, you know, I'm not going to say the match was bad or anything, but it was not not what they wanted, I'm sure. Yeah, I I did not mind this until the finish. I mean, it was all action. Like, it wasn't something amazing, but it, was, it wasn't boring, and I felt yeah, like... Yeah, it was, it was action. End. It was action. There was no story. Yeah, yeah. I felt like for a brand new team, Sal and Tony already had a bunch of double teams, like the drop toehold into the stomach breaker that they did the show before. They'd had a thing where Tony like tosses Sal into the air so he can hit a basement drop kick in the corner. Like he's just giving him kind of a lift boost. Uh, they do a combo side Russian leg sweep and blockbuster. Uh, so I thought like, oh, they got some cool little stuff going on here. And, um, but yeah, the finish, it's just really like, um, it, <laughs> what do I even say? I feel like in wrestling, a lot of times, you know, people say a lot of times in life, you know, your first impression is the most important. I feel a lot of times in wrestling, your last impression is the most important because I feel like if this match had just, uh, um, gone smoothly to, to, to that finish, it wouldn't have helped them. It wouldn't have hurt them, but I felt like this finish probably actively like hurt hurt them because just it being like the sour note at the end of the match you can kind of hear the crowd deflate and look at like the live reports i could find at the time it was like even like the the live report dave wrote in the observer like the one thing this match gets mentioned is 
the one thing that gets mentioned about this match is they botched the finish. And, you know, th- th- that's a bad – when you just become the tag team champions, that's not, like, the early word you want coming out of this. Um, the Sauronaro bicycle thing was funny because I thought – I thought it was kind of random, and I, I didn't like it in the sense of – I felt like we're kind of doing the exact same thing that the last tag team just had because the last tag team champs, BJ Whitmer and Jimmy Jacobs, were this thrown together tag team that won on their first, the tag house on their first night together. Now, granted, in their case, uh, it was kind of forced because obviously that wasn't the original pe- plan. Dan Moff, you know, had to leave the company. And so Gabe kind of threw a new partner together for uh, Whitmer. But the other thing they had going for them was they were kind of this odd couple tag team where one's very serious or not maybe not too serious because Whitmore would sometimes play along with Jacobs, but one was really kind of the goofy, funny guy. I feel like they're already doing it. And I feel like, oh, man, is Gabe just going back to the same thing again? But then for the show, I listened to a bunch of the uh, the Sal Renaro uh, episode of an honorable mention where they interview him, and he talks about how uh, – the bike was just completely his idea, and in fact, uh, Low-Key apparently was running it backstage during this show, which is a funny visual to think about Low-Key just riding a, a bicycle with like a basket in front of it, carefree, not a worry in the world, Matt. But the the thing, what was interesting, though, was Sal was talking about how, um, like, it was interesting – like, you know how on a recent show I talked about how I was I was watching a Kevin Steen shoot and he was talking about on this first run of Ring of Honor. He asked Gabe, like, am I a face or am I heel? And Gabe was like, yeah, you just wrestle. Like, you know, don't worry about that. Sal Renaro basically says the same thing here. And he was like, you know, like, what's our character? What's our team? You know, am I a face or a heel? And Gabe was like, you guys just wrestle. And just like the Kevin Steen thing. I feel like some wrestlers can get over if you just tell them, like, just wrestle, try and have good matches. But there are definitely some wrestlers, they need more of a hook. They need more of a direction. They need, like, that motivation of, you know, am I a face or am I heel? Do I have a character? You know, what's my purpose? And I guess this was Sal's attempt to try and find something. But it, it, it is funny to think that, like, I, I get why maybe – you know, why Gabe would have said that to Kevin Steen in his first run because Gabe was just trying out Steen and he was very low on the card. But these are your brand new tag team champions and you're just telling them, yeah, like just do whatever. Like you would hope that he would have had a bit more of an idea for them, but I guess he didn't. Well, you've definitely thought more about this bicycle than I did. Um, I, uh, yeah, I just thought it was kind of (laughs) neat. I like bikes and I I thought it was cute. I I don't know. Uh, Although when I picture Loki, um, backstage riding a bike, I don't picture it the way you do. I think he's riding around real intensely (laughs) growling as he rides it. Um, get out of the way. That's that's what I, that's what I think of. But, um, get out of the way, Kobashi. I'm going to run you over. (laughs) Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, no. I mean, like that's, that seems like, a little bit Booker malpractice to have like this new team that you're trying to get over and not, and not even like pretend to have an idea of what they're supposed to be like that. Yeah. That seems bad. I think you should for 99.999% of the people have an idea of at least if they're good or bad guys. Right. Like that's, that's like bare minimum. Well, it's funny because uh, we were talking uh, a a few uh, for a bunch of episodes during, during a span this year, about like we would talk a lot about oh, like 
who is, are these guys supposed to be heels? Are these supposed to be phases? Or, you know, sometimes you probably, this guy was kind of acting like a face last time, but today they're kind of acting like a heel and it's so inconsistent. And I think, I mean, that's, I guess that's kind of reflected in the booking. Like that's probably wise. There's probably yeah. a lot of guys they weren't really given an instruction about what way to tip things. Exactly. At different points over the past like year, not like, you know, year in like 2005, there's been a little bit of confusion of people like Nigel, sometimes even Generation Next. Um, even Claudio a little bit, like at the beginning, you're sort of like, okay, he's kind of arrogant, but he also gets cheered. And like, you know, like I bet he was probably given the same direction. Like, we don't know if you're a face or a heel. So I, uh, yeah, I don't think that's good. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess I also wonder, like listening to the South thing, the last thing I'll talk, we're already spending a lot of time talking about South Renaro and Tony Mamaluk, but he would also mention that. It didn't sound like he knew this for 100% sure, but he was kind of saying that the word was when they became tag champs that the, that the plan was for them to lose it to Joe and uh, Jay Lethal. But then somewhere along the way, that plan got changed to Aries and Strong. But I, I also wonder maybe Gabe's not putting as much thought into these guys because maybe in his mind they were always supposed to be just a transitional team to get to the team that he actually – was going to really care about, which was going to always be, I guess, whether it was Lethal and Joe or Aries and Strong, like two stars. You know, that was going to be the next time that he was re- tag team division was actually going to get a little bit rehabbed. It seems, it seems, but that that seems counterproductive to me also because, like, yeah, just keep it on the newly heel turned Jacobs and Whitmer until that moment. Um, yeah, I, I, I will. I do think we could have an interesting conversation when the time comes about the whole Joe and Lethal thing. Because, like, clearly they were building up to Joe winning, like, all the titles in ROH. That was a thing. And clearly they yeah. had the idea of doing it. And it's interesting to think about maybe why they changed their minds. Um, but we'll get to that at another time. Yeah, that'll be interesting to talk about. Uh, next, we get a something I know you'll be – You, this is one of those things we talk about sometimes where we try not to talk to each other that much. I mean, it's not a hard and fast rule, but we try not to talk to each other too much about the show's – before we do the podcast, just so our first impressions to each other are kind of fresh, but occasionally, like, we can't help ourselves, and this was one of those things where Matt lives, you know, I can always tell when something's going to be crazy, because Matt usually is a little bit ahead of me on watching the shows, and he was like, have you seen the Jake John promo And I immediately just went, oh, God, because I knew I knew that wasn't a good thing when, when Matt came to me saying that. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, I was like, because it sure I knew Matt's fault was a good, was wasn't going to be because it sure was good. It was heartwarming and just oh, re- you're gonna want to watch it five times. But next we get a Jay Chung backstage promo, and as often is the case with a women's promos in Ring of Honor, the camera starts at their feet and slowly works their way up so you can see their entire body. Um, Jade says from day one in Ghana, when Prince Nana bought her, he abused her and treated her like a slave. And at this point, I just wrote my notes. It's kind of bad taste, but I wrote, I like how after saying she was purchased by another human being, she was treated like a slave. Ma'am, I think you actually were a slave in that case. Like if someone bought you, you're not being treated like a slave. You are in human bondage, ma'am. Um, anyway, Jade recounts. All the ways we've seen Nana abuse her in Ring of Honor. She ta- and then she talks about she talks about Matt. She talks about looking at the bruises she had and crying herself to sleep every night. She calls it a nightmare. Then she says last night she got revenge and she's doing it for all the women out there. It's time for payback on the embassy. She blows a kiss to the camera and walks away. 
so the weird thing about this, Matt, is I actually thought Jay Chung's delivery was pretty good. Uh, like it's, it's a lot better than Claudia's. I felt like she had some charisma. She had a little bit of confidence. Uh, you know, we've seen a lot of people in Ring of Honor and wrestling in general where their first promos are very wooden and that you can tell they're kind of deer in the headlights because it's hard to get used. Even once you're good in the ring, sometimes to get used to talking, you know, in, in a promo, I felt like for someone that had never done a promo, at least in Ring of Honor before that, those at those performance assets are really good. The material, as I'm sure you will get into double, triple, not good. Yeah. Um, I mean, in, in the sense, like she did a good job in the sense of like, she actually had like some emotional, like something to connect to emotionally, which, you know, a lot of first promos you don't, but it felt like real booking malpractice to me to be like, okay, we built this up for months and months and months. And then we give, a promo to this character a day after this big angle where she breaks free from the embassy and she just has nothing insightful to say about it at all. Like it's literally just the most obvious parts of the story, right? She was treated badly by Nana. Then she stood up for herself and now she's going to stop him, right? Like that was the whole promo. Like you would think that there'd be a lot more insight to gain from this, right? Like, okay, why did she go with Nana? Why did she stick it out with Nana? What eventually made her finally what choose this moment to turn on Nana? Like, you know, all that stuff. Instead, it was just like, like, again, like just the most obvious beats of the storyline that no one needed to tell us about. And like, it just, it, what it made me think was they just didn't think about any of this. And it's like, you should have, like, you, you should have given this young, new, like, performer who doesn't have a lot of experience more direction in what to say and more interesting direction and it's it was really just it was very irritating to me because it's just like we had to sit through all that shit and this was the result like just like she has nothing to say about this it just you like do something for this character right you put so much time into it like give her something give her something interesting to say am i wrong no, not at all. Yes. But it's funny because I actually have a different reason I dislike this promo because I thought there was a very strange juxtaposition between very goofy pro wrestling and very serious imagery in the sense of there are two ways to play this angle. Even if in every way we could argue this angle is misogynistic and stuff, there have been ways this angle has been done that have worked in a pro wrestling context. And there's two ways to play it that it can work. The first way is to do it very goofy and over the top as in, you know, the classic, you know, I was, she could say the same things that someone would do. If we ever seen those angles where like a heel wins the rights to like a face to serve them for 30 days. And they'll say stuff like, Oh, I had to wash their car and shine their shoes and, and very goofy stuff like that. And, and they, and they did some of that imagery in, in this angle. I mean, in the storyline and, you know, the stuff about, I, you know, I flew back to Ghana every, after every match like that. And that part of this promo does have that bit of that goofiness. And then there's a very serious way to do this angle. And I guess that would be more like there's a famous storyline or angle in the eighties for continental wrestling, the famous, I'd like to talk to Tom angle where a woman comes out and she's, she, we learned that she's been faking it 
that's the kind of the tip off the blow off of the angle. But she acts like her heel boyfriend has been beating her up and she asks the baby face Tom Pritchard, like, come out, like, you gotta help me. And they've had makeup on her face to look, to make her look like she says this really bad, you know, black guy. And she's, you know, and, and Gordon Soley is conducting the interview and they're all treating it very deadly serious, like you would about like domestic abuse. And I felt like this angle, like, it had a bit of the goofiness, but then it also had the stuff like here where she, when she was saying, you know, I, and she said it seriously, like every night when I looked at the bruises, it's just like, that's a very dark, serious imagery to go with the crazy goofy goofiness that is generally there with, um, the embassy. And I just thought like those together, for some reason, having them like side by side, the goofiness and really serious parts that made it more off-putting to me for some reason. Well, that's true, but that's been true the entire time for this angle. As far as like, you still have Nana, you know, being, you know, him being Nana, and then you have like him abusing this woman. So like, that didn't stand out to me in this promo because just like, that's just what it was. But like, Man, it's just, it just, it just, st- it just struck me how little thought they put into it. And that bugged me. Like, you know, I, I know, I, I've known, like, part of the reason I don't like this angle so much is, like, I know the payoff is just, like, I knew what, because it was many years ago, so I know what the payoff is. And it just was not worth what they were doing. Like, they were not, yeah. they didn't build up to anything that was worth the time or the weight or the cringe elements of this horrible storyline. So I, um, and I don't think it was really – they did right by Jay Chung, the uh, the performer either because, you know, they put her through all this stuff and like then they, they basically just gave her nothing and she barely appears after this and, you know, a couple other times and then she's gone. And it's like, okay, well, you basically used her as like a pawn just to like get over the embassy and like that is problematic in its own way given the nature of the angle. So it bugged me a lot. And, you know, her and Alice and Deidre have something in common where they both have charisma. I mean, there are things I feel like you could do with them, even from a non-in-ring sense, you know, and they're both at this point being kind of severely underused. Like you talk about Alice and Deidre a lot, how at this point she doesn't even get to talk. She just comes out for ring Christopher Daniels' ring entrances. She doesn't even get the promo time she used to have, and she always had charisma. Yep. But moving on, we have a... Four-corner survival match. Jay Lethal defeated Claudio Castagnoli, Davey Andrews, and Nigel McGuinness in, by, pinfall, by pinfall in 9 minutes, 51 seconds, after he pinned Davey Andrews, after he hit the dragon suplex. Uh, this match felt like it had a couple goals. The first minor one kind of happening in the background was starting the Nigel-Claudio feud. There's at one point they get into a literal shoving match like in the background while Lethal and Andrews are wrestling. But the fun, the the interesting thing to me was it felt like the bigger goal in this one match was making Jay Lethal look fantastic. And in some ways, I felt like he looked in and in, in the highlights of this match better than he did at a lot of points during than he did during the low key feud, where the whole point of that you would think on paper would be to elevate Jay Lethal, but a lot of this match is built around Jay Lethal. In the middle of it, you know, um, 
everyone is teaming up basically against Jay Lethal, which makes no sense in a four-corner match where it's one fall to a finish. Like Lenny Leonard even points it out where everyone is doing moves to Lethal and then immediately tagging out, and, and Lenny Leonard's talking about, like, why would you do that when it's one fall to a finish? And one like there's one point in this match that's it's a spot that makes zero sense. Davey Andrews hits a move on Lethal, and he pins him. He lifts Lethal's shoulders off the mat at a one count and then tags out immediately. Like, why you would do that in a match where only one person can win and it's not elimination, I have no idea. But it felt like they were just trying in the middle of the match to really make Jay Lethal the underdog. And it worked. There's some really fun, like, one-on-three spots for Lethal where he does a, like, quebrada on all three of them. He does a triple pinfall attempt on all of them at the same time. He does do a dive to the floor, and he's caught by all three of them. And then he turns it into an arm drag. And I just felt like that's some of the highlights of the match. And it was really fun, and it made Lethal look like a really impressive baby face but it was weird just knowing the future of jay lethal's run and also just again how it how it made the kind of went against the rules of the match but how hard these guys went into lethal um apart from that i just thought everyone else you know like this match was above average it wasn't anything special but i thought it was enjoyable apart from like the really weird psychology just giving a quick little shout to each guy uh I thought Claudio has a lot of charisma in the ring for a guy who just showed us at this point in his career he had like zero charisma out of the ring. He does a lot of, you know, he has a, he has a real he's really playful at this point in his career. Like he does a lot of haze to the crowd that they love and he's just he's got some good charisma in the ring. He impresses with a lot of cool European uppercuts. He does a big springboard one, he does a nice tope to the outside. Uh Davy Andrews gets to do a little more than you would see a rookie get to do in a Standard rookie match. He hits a couple nice things here, like a uh, delayed power slam where he kind of holds it for a while and a superplex into a final cut. But he's also still mostly at this point just screamy, intense, black trunks rookie. Uh, Leho looked good. He keeps doing those incredibly loud chops at this point. He did a flying chop at one point that looked really cool. And then finally, Nigel, I felt, took a backseat to everyone else. I feel like sometimes when you're the most over most push guy in a four-way sometimes those guys kind of take a back seat maybe with the mindset of like i know my position is safe so you guys like you guys can have most of the of the spotlight here because i'm not worried about like trying to earn a full-time spot or a push right now overall though in fairly enjoyable match nothing incredible though yeah, I would I would agree with that. I li- I liked the match. I thought it was one of the better four ways in a while. Not that they've done so many, but you know, just I, I thought Andrews, considering who he was in with, which were like you know real top tier guys, like he he held his own pretty well. Um, all things considered, as far as what you were talking about with Lethal, um, I do feel like whatever they ended up doing with Lethal, it doesn't seem like they knew that that was the direction they were going to go at this yeah. point. Like they still had a different idea. Like I guess they were probably still planning on him and Joe getting a tag team title run. Um, you know, I'm curious to think about like why they changed directions. But again, forward down the line. Um, Claudio, I thought was was really over here. And like you mentioned, like he does, he wasn't good on promos, but really charismatic in the ring. To some degree, like it's not as stark now, but it's still kind of true, isn't it? Like he never really became like a particularly good promo, right? Um, yeah, he got to the point where it's not a glaring weakness, but I still don't think it's a strength. 
Right. Like, so he still has a lot more charisma in the ring. But he, you know, he had a lot back then. And, and I thought he was impressing. Like, I thought the crowd really got into him. You know, all of his European uppercuts and stuff. I actually enjoyed it early in the match at one point when, um, it was, uh, Lenny Leonard. He goes, um, let me find the line. Um, oh, he said, cause they were starting off and Leonard goes, these are two guys with a European flair. And I was like, hmm, I wonder why they have a European flair to their wrestling. <laughs> um, but um they, they uh like they actually booed lethal when he tags claudio to bring himself into the ring although then they then they started chanting for him right away these crowds are so fickle as brian danielson would say <laughs> um like literally booing to cheering within like 30 seconds of this for the same guy but yeah i know it was fast paced and it was fun like i i mean you 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 know you said a lot of the the big stuff um uh, one part that I liked was a lethal. He knocked Nigel off the top rope and Claudio came from the other side of the ring with a really ex- excellent European uppercut. Then, uh, he hits Nigel with like this bullet of a tope, which I thought was just really, really good. I, I, I just was very impressed with Claudio in this match. And, but like, but like I said, everyone did a pretty good job. Uh, you know, Andrews held his own. So, uh, yeah, pretty exciting, fun little match. Yeah. And Claudio did. Like a 29 count delayed inver- inverted vertical suplex where he held him the other way. Sometimes he did it with one arm. Um, I noticed a couple other things. Davey Andrews has chaos tattooed, just the word chaos on his pec. Matt, are, can we expect to see him with, uh, the best friends at Okada anytime soon? Is, is, is this a sign, Matt? Well, apparently uh, Shane Hagedorn can't even find him. So, <laughs> you know, so I, I, you know, if he ever had a chance to have that happen, he's blowing it. Because he's, he's MIA. He's probably at final battle as we speak. That's going to be the big shocking surprise is Davey Andrews is back. Hey, I'd love it. You'd <laughs> be like one of seven people. No offense to Davey Andrews, but just how many people remember Davey Andrews. Yeah, that would be extremely exciting to me. And uh, God, we're nerds. <laughs> no offense. Uh, so also I noticed on commentary when they were talking about the new Ring of Honor commissioner that, of course, gets uh, announced on the show Shortly after this, they're, they're, they again tease Bret Hart. They, they, they um, Lenny goes, they, you know, we've heard about every, everyone from Lance Storm to Harley Race as a possible name. And then Prazak says again, there's a guy up in Canada who's taken issue with some of Nigel's promos as of late. And I thought, man, I forgot that like two or three shows they were kind of hinting about Bret Hart. And the good news is, any- the good news is everyone knew who it was before they got the DVD. So no one would yeah. have been disappointed. That would have been interesting, Bret Hart as the commissioner of Ring of Honor. Um, Might have been better. I feel like I feel like he was a better fit, vibe wise. Yeah, we can talk about that in a little bit, but I I, I am inclined to perhaps agree. Uh, next up, we get Matt Seidel defeating Jimmy Rave via pinfall in ten minutes two seconds using a snapmare into a cradle after a little bit of interference where Jay, um, Jimmy Rave late goes to use the. Uh, Shoelace while the ref is distracted, but Jay Chung appears and steals it away. Uh, Matt, we've seen these two have a match we liked quite a bit this year, almost a hidden gem. How do you think this match stacked up to that one? Yeah, that match match was at Final Showdown in May in Dayton, which I did like a lot. I do not think this match was as good as that. This match was much more formula, and it was fine as far as that goes. Um, you know, I, you know, I, it started off, uh, pr- you know, pretty classically. Seidel, you know, he did his arm drags and his arm bars, hit a moonsault to the floor onto Raven Nana, you know, babyface shine, all that stuff. Um, then, 
Rave gets the advantage. He uh, he slows things down a lot. Targets Seidel's neck. You know, hits a clothesline to the back of the neck. Um, gets a full Nelson on, which and Rave calls it a. I mean, Prezak calls it a rave lock, which uh, Leonard takes great umbrage with. I guess it's a reference to Chris Math's Masters. Uh, he was still doing the master lock at this point, or at least had been recently. Um, but you know, it was, you know, s- slowed things down. Rave got some heel heat. Gets the full Nelson on a second time. Seidel comes back, you know, flurry of offense. Here it is, driver, standing moonsaults. Um, you know, uh, Rave, you know, does a few of his signature spots. Spear, gonorrhea. Uh, Seidel avoids that one, gets a roll up. Um, and, and then Nana uh, distracts the ref so Rave can pull the shoelace out of his boot. And that's when Chung comes in and grabs it from him and Seidel gets the roll up. Just, I mean, very unremarkable, but... I mean, fine. It was a, you know, it was a, just a perfectly solid baby face first heel match. No one was trying to do anything super interesting or, you know, steal the show in any kind of way. But it continues the feud, gets Chung involved. So I don't really have any complaints about it, but it, not something that I would, that I even remembered like a minute after I saw it. Yeah, I completely agree. I am disappointed in this match only because. I enjoyed the last match these two had uh, quite a bit, so I thought like, ooh, maybe could we see another that like another match I forgot was pretty good. But no, this is very middle of the road, decent, but nothing memorable. Like you said, it was interesting to me that it was very Jimmy Ray formula in the sense of like a lot of Jimmy Rave matches, it gets he gets the advantage in the middle and he slows it down. But usually it comes with cheating, and this time he doesn't really cheat to get the advantage in the middle. It just the only cheating happens at the very end, the attempt for him to cheat. And um there were a couple spots I liked, even though you know Rave sometimes slows it down almost a little too much. I felt like he did a lot of his coolest spots in this match. You know, he does the spear, but he spears Seidel right out of midair, which looked cool. Uh, he does his Northern Lights bomb, which I think is a re- he does a really good looking version of that. Where the camera angle that they caught on this one, it looked like he dropped Seidel right on his head. When I'm sure he didn't. Stuff like that. I liked the little spot where. Uh, R- Rave ducks on um, Seidel in Zagir. Rave is um, Seidel starting just little comeback into the match, and Rave's cut off as he ducks it in Zagiri, and so Seidel lands flat on the stomach, and Rave just immediately curb stomps the neck he's been working on, and I thought that was a really cool transition to keep Rave back in control. And you know, Seidel's offense as always looks good, but yeah, n- nothing particularly special about this match. The master lock thing. It definitely was an ode to the master lock because this was the era where Chris, Ma- Chris Masters was kind of getting pushed. I wonder – we know that Jimmy Rave was eventually going to use the pedigree as a, as a finisher to uh, get heat to great success. I wonder if this was him experimenting with other – like if, the, if he already had that idea but he was trying to find the perfect move because I have to think that he's doing that just to get heat in the same way the pedigree would get heat like – True, although using- true, although it was just a transition move in this match. It wasn't like he wasn't really like trying to like do much with it, you know. Yeah. It, also interesting is uh, for people you may or may not notice this, but as uh, Seidel comes to the ring, someone shouts at him, "Mr. TPI," and that would be not because that doesn't stand for toilet paper instigators, <laughs> because uh, Jimmy Rave did get toilet paper thrown at him again today, including pink streamers, but uh. No, that that is because Seidel had just won the Ted Petty Invitational Tournament, so 
some fan acknowledging that. And, you know, Seidel was on the way up, you know, in his wrestling career. You know, he's in Generation Next now. He's winning a big indie tur- annual indie tournament, you know, doing well for himself. But next up would be Ricky Reyes defeating Derek Dempsey via submission in 28 seconds when Dempsey passed out in the Dragon Sleeper. This was just another squash, just like the the show before, where you know he squashes someone in a very short time. This was even shorter than the last squash, which I think was in like the forty something second range. Nothing to it. It's all a setup, really, for the post match angle. After the match, his Derek Dempsey's brother Bobby Dempsey gets in the ring to check on his brother as Julie Smoke steps in the ring and grabs a mic. Smoke says that this match was for Colt Cabana. And then Bobby snatches the mic away from Smokes and says, I think you killed him. Someone call an undertaker. What a, like de- what a debut for Bobby Dempsey that he gets to – this is the first time he ever really appeared and he gets to snatch the microphone away from Julius Smokes in his very first move on ROH – like it's an ROH character. Man, I didn't realize that he had such an auspicious debut. Unbelievably ballsy that he got away with that. Yes. And – and also, again, such a corny line in the sense of – I'm obviously saying it's saying what comes next. But it's funny, like, you're instantly going to Undertaker. Like, not call a doctor, not – call an Undertaker. Um, he ne- he immediately needs to be buried, I guess, is what he thinks is <laughs> – he was not buried enough by that match. He has to be, like, literally buried immediately. Not even, like, no coroner, nothing. Just bury him. Bobby Dempsey, extremely low comp, uh, tolerance for decomposition. Yes. He, he can't stand a little tiny bit of it. Um, anyway, the lights immediately go out. Ominous, gen- but rip-off kind of music plays, and out comes Paul Bearer, dressed in red with no makeup. He gets a little bit of applause, and one woman screaming her head off. One woman really liked seeing Paul Bearer here. Uh, Paul says he's not an undertaker, but will a Paul Bearer do? Everyone clears the ring so Paul can take it to have it to himself. He's very, he says he's very happy to be here, but he's not here to bury anybody. He's here because he's the new Ring of Honor commissioner. And this gets a fairly good reaction, but then Jim Cornette comes out right after and gets a whole, I would say, different level of reaction, including a big Jim Cornette chant as well as a welcome back chant. Meltzer kind of suggested that, like, Paul Bearer was brought out so people would boo and so Cornette would get a bigger cheer, but then people actually just cheered Paul Bearer. But I, did they really think people were going to boo Paul Bearer? It seems hard for me to believe. Yeah, uh, yeah, I mean... It, it, I do think Paul Bear was one of the names they even teased on the website. You know, yeah. I couldn't get the Wayback Machine working for this era of Ring of Honor, but I would see other reports. You know, they were teasing, like Lenny said earlier, um, Lance Storm, Harley Race, Bill After they were teasing, apparently, and I think <laughs> they, uh, as the commissioner. But anyway, uh, Paul said, uh, Paul then asks, what is Jim Cornette's name? Which gets some laughs, genuine laughs from the crowd. Just the idea that, that he would not know who Jim Cornette is. Jim says he thinks the fans know. He thinks Paul knows. Cornette says ring of honor over the last couple of years gave him the opportunity with some, to work with some of the best is with some of his best friends and heroes. He talks about the midnight express reunion show. He talks about getting to work against Bobby Heenan for the first time here in ring of honor. Uh, Cornette says he was in town to film another Ring of Honor shoot interview DVD, and he wanted to see Kenta Kobashi in, pers- in person, and he wanted to be in the ring with another person he admires and respects, another great manager. Paul asks if his name is Paul, and Jim says it isn't. Paul at this point goes, oh, no. 
Cornette says, deep in his innermost bowels, I guess as opposed to your outer bowels, hidden, covered over, there's a manager he respects who stands for old school named Percy Pringle. Cornette says, Ring of Honor was founded on wrestling fans getting what they wanted to see. Winners and losers, not a bunch of guys interfering, not disqualifications, winners and losers. Ring of Honor is built on guys who earned their spots, not wrestlers who got them from favoritism, optimism, or nepotism, guys who aren't the pawns of backstage political manipulations, guys who go after meaningful titles rather than ones that change all the time and that get put around the waist of a booker or comedian or office worker, guys who would be allowed to express themselves and not have words stuffed down their throats by Hollywood comedy writers. Cornette says Ring of Honor is about old school, and so he wants to see Percy Pringle throw off the shackles. Paul asks if Jim is saying Paul Bear lied to Percy Pringle for 14 years. Cornette says not only did he do that, he lied to these people because he's not the new commissioner of Ring of Honor. Jim Cornette is. That gets a pop. Um, Paul says Paul Bear doesn't like that, don't like that. But then he changes his voice mid-sentence and goes, Percy Pringle loves it because Jim Cornette is, is the best manager in the business today. And he's proud to say he's also his friend. They shake hands and say, oh, yes, together. Cornette guarantees the fans that he won't have a problem upholding the rules, even if, to put, even if he has to put his foot down or put his foot up or slap some sense into anybody going against Ring of Honor's principles. Cornette then calls Julius Smokes back out to the ring, with Ricky Reyes and Grim Reefer coming out behind him, standing at the uh, entranceway. Cornette announces that the main event tonight will have no managers or seconds at ringside, and if they try to interfere, he swears to God they will never step in a Ring of Honor ring again. Cornette says Smokes is a big man carrying that Tennessee toothpick, a.k.a. a baseball bat, but we'll see how tough he is if his paycheck gets cut off. The Rottweilers hold Smokes back from going to the ring. Cornette says, tells the crowd to count to 10, and he says that the Rottweilers are not gone by the time they hit 10. They're fined $1,000 apiece. They run back at the count of 10, or I guess technically actually they ran back after the right after the crowd said 10, so they could have gotten a fine. Gave him uh, a little, Cornette, he gave him a little bit of leeway. That's a fair commissioner yeah. right there. <laughs> uh, Cornette thanks everyone again. He promises to give the fans what they want to see. Um, Matt, this is something, I mean, we've kind of touched on this before with Cornette. I thought this was a good, fiery, standard Jim Cornette promo. And it was, as you mentioned, the classic wrestling bait and switch of you give someone, you give the fans something that you think will be like a disappointment to them. And then to hopefully make the the real surprise seem even bigger and, and the fans are even more grateful, like, oh, we got that. But yeah, I don't think the fans were like going crazy for Paul Bear, but I think they enjoyed seeing him. So it wasn't like they shit on, but I do think they definitely were happier to see Jim Cornette than Paul Bear. Um, but as always, I think with Jim Cornette, and you kind of alluded to this with the Bret Hart thing mentioned, we talked about a second ago. I think Jim Cornette's problem was always with Ring of Honor was he just. I think when someone's like the face of the company and like a commissioner role, you want to feel like they're really like you, you can at least pretend they're a huge fan of the company. And while I'm sure there's aspects of Ring of Honor Cornet really liked. He never seemed completely in step with Ring of Honor, as I think he'd prove when he eventually got some political power in Ring of Honor and ended up alienating like half the roster that would become huge future stars in the business, like the Young Bucks or El Generico and Kevin Steen or Colt yeah. Cabana. And just his reaction and, to AEW now, like kind of is like, 
okay, well, like, this is not so different than what Ring of Honor was back then. So if he feels this way about AEW, like, how did he really feel about what was going on in ROH? Clearly wasn't the person that was going to carry the torch for them or be their spokesperson. And, and and his promo here even he keeps emphasizing like Ring of Honor is old school wrestling and in some ways it has some old school principles but Ring of Honor really it wasn't sold as old school wrestling if anything it was sold as like the modern cutting edge state of the art wrestling but it felt like Cornette tries to sell everything he does like to Cornette the biggest endorsement he can give wrestling is it's old school because even like when smoky mountain started in 93 or 94 whenever the the catchphrase for that i think was like it's old school wrestling the way you liked it you know the way you remembered it and i, and I thought back to that i looked it up jim Cornette when he started smoky mountain wrestling doing this like it's wrestling the way you it used to be he was younger by a few years matt than we are now and even then he was mr like it was better back then which is kind of crazy to think. And again, I just feel like that was not the image of Ring of Honor, I don't think. It was not Smoky Mountain, OVW kind of were the last bastions of the territory. No, no. their uh, their early uh, slogan was the future is now. Yeah. Yeah, we don't, you know, we innovate and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, we don't imitate, you know, we, we don't... innovate. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, I know you're right. Um, I mean, it was a good promo. I, you know, like as far as just like taking this promo in a vacuum, like it was good. Like he, he's a good, he's, he's a really good promo and the crowd was happy to see him. Honestly, the thing that pissed me off the most was when Paul Bearer came out, he used a, he pulled a chair up to step up onto the apron. And I was just thinking like, you have Kobashi stairs right there. What? Like <laughs> the, the, the stairs are too good for Paul Bearer that he couldn't use the couldn't use the stairs for him to get. I don't know. That that bugged me a little bit. It felt disrespectful. I don't know. Well, but although sorry. I do remember, I think on the last show we talked about how they had to put the make the stairs or something, and they were worried they were gonna eat, weren't even going to hold up. So maybe someone said, like Paul, no offense, but don't test the stairs. You know? Yeah, Leave yeah. Them for I I don't. You know. Paul Bear, I don't know. Kobashi was a big, muscular guy. I don't think Paul yeah. Bearer weighed so much more than Kobashi. I don't know. Um, but maybe I'm just bad at eyeballing this sort of thing. But um, I will say this, and this is not really about this promo or anything like that, because I, I agree with you. I don't, you know, called Cornet just doesn't feel like the right fit. But you know, he'll, you know, he'll do his job well. I think, you know. Um, but. Um, you know, and actually, I'll get. I think we can get into it more when it comes to the CZW feud because I think some of the stuff he articulates against CZW is not really the right note to to yeah. to, to go by. But anyway, um, there he's, when he says in the main event, there's going to be no managers, no seconds, and anyone involved, no one involved in the match, and like you know, he'll find anybody who comes out. It just strikes me as like. Obviously, this is not what pro wrestling would ever do because it's pro wrestling. But like, why doesn't he just do that for every match? Like, really, if you go like to one of the root, like illogical aspects of pro wrestling, it's like, why do you allow people to just be at ringside during matches, getting involved in them? You know, like it just seems like it's just absurd on its face. But you know, that's pro wrestling, so you just sort of turn, you know, turn a blind eye to it. But like, if you can ban people from ringside for this match, why not ban the people that constantly interfere from every match? Doesn't that make sense? Yeah, why don't they make the entire plane out of what they make the black box out of? Yeah, exactly. But 
but no, yeah, and I think it's far tougher to be a face commissioner than a heel one because if a heel one, if you're a heel commissioner and something doesn't quite make sense or have that kind of logic that you just expressed, you go, well, he's a heel. He's either incompetent or he just doesn't care or he's evil, nefarious. When you're a babyface commissioner, if something doesn't quite make sense, you're just like, man, he's bad at his job. Yeah, speaking yeah. of something that speaking of something that doesn't make sense, um, why would Smokes get involved in the main event? He represents both teams. <laughs> yeah, like, what's he gonna do? Got, yeah, like, who's he gonna interview? I, I mean, yeah, because even if he attacks <laughs> Joe, like, that's gonna hurt low key. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's that's a great point. I did not even think about that. And and if he attacks Kobashi, I mean, honestly, like, that would be great because, like, just the idea that Julius Smokes <laughs> is doing spots with Kenta Kobashi would make me extremely happy. Can you imagine how Julius Smokes would sell a Kenta Kobashi chop? Oh my He's god, having a seizure right now. In 2021, the thing is, I think um, those I think those Kenikobashi chops are impossible to sell because you're in too much actual pain to be able to sell them. Yeah, you just you just kind of go blank and, and yes. emotionless, right? So I actually have a couple little uh, newsletter notes from this segment. The first is uh, Dave Meltzer talking about his then good friend Jim Cornette. Always had to put over Jim. He wrote upon seeing the tape of the show. That show, referring to this show, also had Jim Cornette's debut as commissioner, and in hindsight, the best thing that ever happened to him was being dropped by WWE. He looks years younger and has dropped a lot of weight without the stress. In fact, he looks significantly younger now than he did in 1996 when he was managing in WWE. I don't know if I would go that far. No, I don't agree with that at all. I mean, he he doesn't look older, really. Like, he looks mostly the same. So that's good. I mean, that's good because he is older. But, like, yeah, he... He doesn't look significantly younger than he did nine years earlier. He has a spiffy white ceiling, which I think he refers to even as his Miami Vice suit. But yeah, like I would say Jim Cornette, he looks the same, which, hey, if you look the same nearly a decade later in life at any point in your life, I I think you're doing pretty well. I I guess unless you're a kid, that means you have some kind of disease. (laughs) But but in general, (laughs) if if a decade passes and you look the same, that's a good thing usually. Um or your Benjamin Button. But, well, actually, no, that, that'd be reverse. Anyway, never mind. Uh, then finally, a Wade Keller note, which I thought was funny. I guess this is one of those things where poor Wade, like sometimes I feel like he's misguided, but like in a cute way. And I think this is one of those moments. Wade wrote about this. Um, Having the otherwise jobless Jim Cornette become the first Ring of Honor commissioner is a good move, too. B- besides great promos, Cornette is the king of logic. He's an, he, he is a fan of Ring of Honor, so he should be able to make sense of anything that needs explaining. In fact, in terms of his future in the industry, being around Ring of Honor should help him see another way of promoting wrestling. Having him around to give advice and provide alternative perspectives should help Ring of Honor, Gabe Sapol- Ring, ROH's Gabe Sapolsky, get out of any tough spots, too. I yeah, like- yeah, yeah, really un- ended up enlightening jim Cornette. <laughs> yeah i thought oh, oh way when i read that like like nothing like if, if there's one thing we we now know for sure about jim Cornette is like he was kind of set in stone by like 1988 and exactly. nothing was going to change him if anything's become more set in certain ways um, yes definitely the idea that Ring of Honor was going to like get you know not since we read Wade saying that like he thought that, that some people were telling him that they thought that CM Punk would get a really really get along with Triple H has Wade maybe then this wrong on a Ring of Honor take but so like just a few weeks earlier <laughs> <laughs> yeah but still adorable um, next, when when, uh, when Wade is wrong it's extremely lovable because he just seems like yeah. such a sweetie like the the you know there's some there are certain uh, wrestling journalists where it's a lot more claw- cloying when they have like 
over the top things that they're very confident about. <laughs> yeah, I think with Wade also it's usually because his big misses are usually from like a place of optimism. Yep. Like, golly gee, Triple H and CM Punk, they're going to be go, they're going to be like gangbusters together. Or man, Jim Cornette, he's really going to love the kids. He's going to see a new way. Like, like, it's not a cynical. It's, it's, it's the, he's going in the other way. He's like, this yes. is going to work out. And it's like, wait, you poor thing. Your heart hasn't been broken enough. Still, um, still optimistic after all these years, Wade Keller. Yeah. But that brings us to Roderick Strong defeating James Gibson, scored to the ring by B.J. Whitmer, who I guess we, we are told is a friend of Jim James Gibson, which is something that was never been acknowledged in the storyline. But, hey, this is James Gibson's last match in Ring of Honor. Strong wins via submission in 28 minutes, 49 seconds, when he makes uh, Gibson tap out to the stronghold. Matt, this is it. This is uh, James Gibson's last match in Ring of Honor. And although he did said in all those promos, you know, including I think the one on this show, that he'll be back one day if they ask him to. This he uh, unless he comes back on the show that is happening as we record this podcast, uh, he may uh, never get a chance to do that. I guess. Yeah, um, they had a great match also earlier in the year, in my opinion, but um, at the Best of American Supers Juniors, where um, Strong really destroyed Gibson's back. Um, but I'm actually very curious to hear what you thought of this match because this to me is like uh, emblematic of what I would call at this time the ROH like almost like house style, like main event style. Like it's very emblematic of what ROH like was at the time in terms of their big matches and I love it. Like this is just like tailor-made for me. Like just the way it wor- is worked, like it's just like it's, they treat it seriously, they are – you know, they're just wrestlers. So, you know, in like, in pure Gabe fashion, they're not really baby faces or heels here. I mean, they're both baby faces, but like, you know, they both act really aggressive sometimes. They both, um, you know, takes, you know, a little few liberties every once in a while. So they're not like pure, good hearted, good, good little go getters. Um, but they are, um, but you know, they, they, you know, they're, they're intense. It builds and builds. It's slow pace, but like never boring. This is just a match that I – this is just the style that I love. This is why I liked ROH so much at the time. And, um, you know, early on, you know, they, they don't just – you know, the crowd is really into it because it's Gibson's last match. They don't just shake hands. They actually hug. Um, they say that the match is for the designation of the 2005 MVP, which um, Alan Cunahan uh, referenced, to, referenced to us on his podcast a few months ago. So, you know, everyone was waiting to find out who would win that distinction. So we're about to find out. But um, another thing I noticed, they were really trying to get FIP over. They were really pushing the match that the two of them had in FIP a little bit before this. But I was thinking like, hmm. That match probably came out on DVD like six months after this one did, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> weren't those DVDs like in notoriously, insanely slow to come out? Um, so, so you like were pushing the tickets to FIP, but you got to catch a flight so you don't miss the next Gibson Strong level FIP match with five other hardcore fans. Um, <laughs> but and a few kids. Yes, it's a DVD product. Um, but you know, like they, you know, they start slow. You, you can tell they're they're going long, and you know, Strong is obviously going after Gibson's back. You know, he he actually does a classic style backbreaker a few times, which you don't see too often from Roderick Strong. It's much more like the variations. Um, and Gibson comes back with a neckbreaker, so they're doing the the back versus the neck thing. Um, 
then, like I said, it's slow early on. Gibson attempts a dive over the top onto Roderick, but Roderick catches him and just chucks him back first into the guardrail. And then they have this really intense forearm fight on the floor that descends into a brawl, and the crowd goes crazy, and Roderick wins the fight by ramming Gibson's back into the guardrail. And they start getting a little bit rougher with each other, and they go back in, and uh, you know Strong does his full Nelson with the legs, which I always like. Um, Gibson actually does a full traditional like st- surfboard, like with the Danielson style, like whoa, whoa setup. He doesn't do that too often in his ROH matches, and he even gets some pinning combinations with it. Um, I will say Roderick's strikes are really on point here. Like his, not just his chops, like all of his strikes. And Gibson does some chops too, but, you know, Roderick's are definitely the ones to beat, I thought. Um, the crowd seems to be on Gibson's side mostly in the early part of the match, like I say in the first half as Roderick methodically works over Gibson's back. You know, he does like a grounded bear hug, uh, dump a bunch of stuff like that. Uh, Gibson actually gets the cloverleaf pretty early after he reverses the double knees, but Roderick makes the ropes and, uh, Gibson starts coming back with aggressive strikes, hits the side of the head with uh, his knees, side of Strong's head with his knees a few times. Um, Strong actually gets the stronghold, but the crowd doesn't react much the first time because it's pretty clear like the match is going to be going for a while longer. Um, he ties Gibson up in the top rope and hits like a flurry of chops, and Prezak goes, We thought the chops last night between Kobashi and Joe were hell. And I'm like, mm, Those were still harder. <laughs> <laughs> like Strong, Strong was doing some good chops, but they were not they were not more impressive than Kobashi's. Sorry, I mean, even Jay Lethal's early in the show also really hard. Like yeah. this was a, a a golden era for Ring of Honor chops. Yes, yes, that's not to take anything away from Strong's chops. Um, they do a spot where Strong puts Gibson on the against the post, and Gibson moves, and Roderick chops the post. You know, every time I see that spot, I think like God, that's really risky to someone's hand, like. Because they hit that post really hard. Like, how do they do that without hurting their hands? I would, I would refuse to do that spot. Like a spot where I know I'm going to like just chop a really hard metal post. Right? Yeah. I mean, am I crazy? Doesn't that seem like a really dangerous spot to do? Yeah, I, I don't get how you can uh, de- fake it. Yeah. Loosen, loosen your hand up at the very end and just hit it with your palm. Like, that I... still seems to be dangerous. Yeah, you, you go I, I hit a know. really hard pull as hard as you can with your palm. So it makes a noise. I, I wouldn't want to do it. Um, I mean, I think everyone those. Cut, sorry, everyone cut that clip of Matt saying you hit a pole really hard, a really hard pole with your palm. Yeah, go ahead, do it. <laughs> um, but like, I think actually, if you look at it, most knife edge chops end up being with the palm, right? Like you know, even when you hit yeah. a person's chest, right? Um, so they're really not chops. They're actually they're like they're slaps. Um, but um, Gibson takes that opportunity to beat up Strong all around ringside, putting him against the guardrail, doing a running knee to his head right against the guardrail, almost like Ole Ole style. Um, and now you see Gibson, he's working over Roderick's hand, stomping on it on the floor. He hits a brain buster. He snaps at Strong's fingers, Pete Dunn style, although without the cracking sound. Have we ever established how they do that really loud cracking sound without actually breaking someone's fingers? That's another one. That's another. It's like I guess I guess that's sort of like the whole like the magic of pro wrestling thing, right? They always break. They always do. You know, they, you know the funny thing is, Matt, is I can crack my big toe. I broke it when I was a teenager, and I can like crack my big toe so it's really loud. So like if I ever got into wrestling, every match I could have a thing where they take off my shoe. <laughs> Yeah, or you, or you could be, or you could be like, I don't know, like, who are some wrestlers that don't, um, don't wear, um, 
don't wear shoes in the ring. Uh, Superfly uh, Jimmy Barnett, Snuka, Eric, uh, Matt Riddle, all, yeah. all all the nicest and uh, yeah, people. <laughs> yeah, just just have that, and then like someone will just crack your toe. It'll be uh, a, a classic spot. It's like you can't powerbomb Kidman, and Trevor Dame can't go through a match without getting his toes attacked. <laughs> <laughs> Every wrestler has a foot fetish when they wrestle Trevor. Um, Tony Atlas. <laughs> Tony Atlas against Trevor Dame. It's a classic. Um, oh, my God. Um, but, yeah, so – Set up for OnlyFans. Yes, exactly. I'm, I'm in. Um, <laughs> just hit that pole um, with your palm. Um, G- Gibson is – he uses a lot of knees in this match, like a lot. Like more than usual, but I guess it is a longer match. Um, uh, Roderick esta- escapes a tiger driver, puts Gibson in a tree of woe, and hits some big running tree of woe boots to the face, which were you know came off really well and gets a two count on that. And I do like that. Like Strong is not able to chop as much at this point. Like he's actually selling the hand, which is good. Um, so he gets uh, he gets a, a top rope superplex, gets a two count off that. Um, Gibson goes hits a knee strike all the way from the top rope, gets a two count on that. Then he hits a double arm DDT out of nowhere, right into the front guillotine. Strong stands up, runs Gibson into the turnbuckle, and Gibson hits a rolling German suplex, and he hits six in a row and almost stops, but then stands up and hits a seventh with a bridge. And I have to say, he got up much faster than, um, th- for each subsequent one than Benoit did at the time. Like, Benoit was much more slow. Gibson was like flying one to the other. But so this was like the only negative in the match. Strong kicks out, but the bell rings. And I'm like, that couldn't have been on purpose because like, why? Right? Like, why would they, I like, was it, it must have just been a botch. Um, and, yeah. And did you notice that Todd Sinclair, I think he immediately, he like, he's, he's going to the ref immediately and saying like, that's too, like, like, I don't think it was a thing where he singled, signaled, to the timekeeper. No. I think the timekeeper went, went into, into business, business for themselves. themselves. Yeah, what a, what a yeah. weird thing to do for a timekeeper. Like, why would you? And like, what is the timekeeper stupid? Like that they like they think that Gibson's <laughs> not going to win this match? No, I'm just being mean. But like, seriously, like it doesn't make any sense. Maybe it was booked, but I can't figure out why. I couldn't yeah. figure out what the purpose would be. But otherwise, it was a good near fall, and the crowd was really chanting for ROH and stuff. It took me out of it a little bit, but not. It wasn't too bad. Um. So after a little bit of delay, um, Gibson follows up, but Roderick hits a backbreaker for two, and Strong goes for the half-Nelson backbreaker, but Gibson reverses it into a crucifix pin for two. Gibson follows that up with a backbreaker of his own, and a Tiger driver gets a two-count, and the crowd really pops big for that near fall. Um, Gibson goes for the top-rope Tiger driver, but Strong fights it off, hits the double knees from the middle rope, and immediately locks on the Stronghold, and Gibson tacks, taps really quickly. Um yeah, like I said, I'm very curious to know what you think because I know that you don't like the style as much as I do, but this was one of my favorite ROH matches of 2005. I just really love the execution. It built up the crowd. It was stiff. I thought this, the story was like inherent without being heavy-handed, just the idea of like the two different body parts. Strong was trying to – you know, Gibson was trying to win in his last match. Strong was trying to make a name for himself. They, you know, they respected the hell out of each other. Um, you know, maybe you could say like the selling of the limbs wasn't as good as it could be, but the selling of the exhaustion and the intensity of the fight I thought was really good. 
Um, and I thought it was just a classic, you know, basic babyface versus babyface, like great wrestler match. Whereas Danielson versus Gibson was like more low key, like, you know, just kind of like they didn't do like the real intense, like build, build, build. It was like sort of like just like this, like really classic wrestling match. This was like a, a really like intense modern match that deal that did build. They didn't do anything so innovative or fascinating. It wasn't like Joe versus Kobashi where it's like, oh my God, that match was magical. But I just thought, I thought it did its job at a very, very high level. And this is just the sort of stuff I really like. So I thought it was one of the better matches in ROH that year. I don't know if I would go quite as high as you, but I did think this was a great match. Like, four stars, great. Like, I, I'm not low on this match. I, I I do think you were you're right when you're thinking that, like, I don't like this maybe quite as much as you in the sense that <clears throat> I like a little bit more sometimes emotion or story or, or sometimes I, I don't, I can't quite put why maybe I don't like this style quite as much as you. Although I obviously, I think this match is great. I really enjoyed it. But I think one thing you talked about with the build, the one thing that was interesting to me about this match or how I felt about it was, and I think I've talked about this with, uh, the, I forget what match, but maybe one other match on through the years has made me feel this way, where I talk about a lot of times when you watch a match, how you feel about it at the end is kind of the sum uh, total of the experience in the sense that, you know, there are part, you know, if you're if creating a match on, on, say, like a scale of one to ten, you know, there might be parts of the match that you feel are a five and parts that you feel are a ten. And at kind of the end of the match, you go, oh, my sum total of enjoyment of this match was like an eight. Where I feel like this match, if I was using, you know, star ratings, I would say after the first couple of minutes, like, this match is four stars, like, all the way through. Like, I, I didn't really feel like there was moments maybe apart from a couple of exciting moments right near the end where I was go higher than four in terms of my enjoyment, but also apart from like the first minute or two where it's just getting started, think it was less than four stars. Like I felt all the whole way through, I was like, this is really great. Like this is like really at a really enjoyable level very quickly. And it just stays consistently at that level. And I think a lot of matches aren't like that. Um, I really liked also how, a lot of matches, especially in this era, in this kind of the U.S. NDC at this point, are very compartmentalized in the sense of, like, here's the, our mat work section, here's our one big epic strike exchange, here are the near falls at the end. And this match, it's like both guys, it's like, here's a couple hard sh- strikes, here's the submission, here's a couple moves, here's a couple strikes, here a couple, here's a submission, here's a couple moves. And it's like cycles between all three elements through most of the match. And I felt like that made it feel like more like a war, you know, and less like a performance, you know, it, like, like these two were really trying to break each other down however they could. So it's like, okay, I'm going to hit you really hard. Now I'm going to try and stretch you. And now I'm going to, you know, hit a backbreaker. And it, the way it cycled between the three all the way through, I liked that vibe it gave the match. Um, and this is another match I won't get another chance to mention. So even though I've mentioned it multiple times before, God damn, was James Gibson good at selling with his whole body. I think I talked about during the Liger double shot how sometimes wrestlers with masks, they have to sell with their body and they do a, such a great job. And it makes sense when you think that James Gibson wore a mask for a few, like a little less than a year in WCW because he sells so good with his body. If you watch this match, you know, he sells with every inch 
of himself. He'll go limp. He'll collapse like, on the rope so that they're the only things holding up. He'll go rubber legged. He'll need help to pull himself up to his feet. Like he sells being hurt. A lot of people that when they sell, they sell just with their face and whatever body parts being worked on. James Gibson, you watch him in a match like this. He's a guy that sells from head to toe. Like every part of him is telling the story of what he wants to show you. And I just, this is the last time I'll get to say that, you know, I admire the way he does it so much. I thought I really liked the end. Like, I I bet you there are people out there, Matt, that think the seven German suplexes is excessive. But I feel like this match is, like, somewhat restrained apart from the last couple of minutes for what's supposed to be, like, another star-making performance and James Gibson's farewell match. You would think if there's ever a chance to go all the way, like, nuts, It'd be this match. And that's really the the one crazy thing they do is the seven German suplexes. And for me, it works. I know some people will go, oh, that's too much. It's also the thing I feel like that, like the crowd, which was already into the match, they go like, that's the highlight for them. They go an extra level of nuts once they realize, holy shit, we're seeing seven consecutive German suplexes. And I like the end too. I like the idea that Gibson hits Roddy's half Nelson backbreaker and then he hits the tiger driver and then he does the same thing he did when he feuded with uh CM Punk which is the regular tiger driver doesn't work so he goes for the top rope one but you know that costs him the match because he doesn't he isn't able to hit the top rope one and Roddy's able to reverse into a move of his own and then do the stronghold so I like that as a finish and yeah I I thought this was a great match and uh a great way to end um James Gibson's run in, in, in Ring of Honor. I, I um, you. as when you mentioned that the match had a lot of restraint, I still think even to up to this point in 2005, ROH the house style, which is what I said this match represents to me, like the ROH style, the ROH main event style, because this clearly could have been a world title match, you know, like the way they worked it. Um, they still don't. They still do have a lot of restraint when it comes to like near falls and finishers. You really don't see, even in 2005, many of those like spamming finishers, spamming kickouts types matches in ROH. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because I think that, that is a reputation that like these big indie matches have even to this day. And that's not really what ROH does, at least not up to this point. Yeah, because I feel like a match today, a farewell match in like a lot of promotions, they'd have gone even bigger than this. I mean, this match certainly it goes long and it's nearly half an hour, but in terms of just like near falls and crazy moves, a lot of matches these days would go way bigger than this in this situation. I was watching some stuff from like the Young Bucks era of ROH, some of their big tag title matches, and like, oh my god, do they do a lot of ridiculous near falls? <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. Like, and like you do, you just at this point at least. Again, it'll be interesting to see if that changes in like oh six or oh seven. But at this point, they were not doing it. I also really liked one spot. I really liked just looking at my notes. I love when Roderick Strong just kind of muscles Gibson up into a power slam type position, and then he just slams him into a backbreaker. I thought he should do that more. I haven't seen him do that much. I thought, man, that's a really kind of cool variation. Also, I got to ask you, Matt, was this the debut? of the there was a firefight or was that the night before because i noticed on this show i don't remember noticing the last show where roderick strong always had that clip from the boondock saints where it's william De- william defoe going there was a firefight and then it goes into his big screamy rock theme but hmm, that's a good, good, it's a good question i do not know the answer i'll you know maybe i'll go back and look i always thought that was kind of an interesting choice to open up a wrestler's theme music was it never really understood it but hey you know it it, it was it became iconic for that generation of roh 
Yeah, more wrestlers should start their themes with uh, Willem Dafoe movie quotes, like just him as the Green Goblin being like, I'll, I'll get you this time, Spider-Man, and then your theme starts. That would be good stuff. But, someone uh, so, Somewhere on some indie, someone has done that. <laughs> Maybe Spider-Nate Webb could have it as the preamble to Teenage Dirtbag. <laughs> also, gotta give a shout out to Philly. Their streamer game was on point on this night, because for... Uh, Jimmy Wraith, they threw just pink streamers, a few of them, and not many, but also some toilet paper. And then for uh, James Gibson, they threw nothing but green and white, like for the most part, John Deere-themed streamers. So Philly, really good on your – you did a good job with the streamers on this night. Um, after the match, Dave Prezak on commentary says, this cements Roderick's status as the MVP of 2005. Uh, BJ Whitmer checks on Gibson as the crowd chants. Thank you, Gibson. Will 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 be the ones who decide who the MVP of 2005 is in about four months. <laughs> Actually, I should ask you, Matt. Um, like, do you think it's, uh, they did this in 2003 with Homicide Two, where they would always sell like on commentary, like he's the MVP of Ring of Honor. Do you think like? I mean, I get what they're saying, like, out of character, like, all these guys have had such great, so many great matches this year, but, like, in kayfabe, isn't the MVP whoever's the world champion? <laughs> like, yeah. it seems kind of, the guy that's in the mid-card, like, this is the MVP of 2005. ROH always straddled the line of kayfabe, to the point where even on this show, on commentary, when they talk about the main event, they're like, storylines are out the window. So it's yeah. like, if, if they're going to say shit like that, I guess they can get away with saying someone's the MVP for having good matches. <laughs> But at the same time, they're saying Roddy's the MVP because he won a match. Yeah, it's so it, they're, it's they're definitely uh, definitely inconsistent and confusing. But yeah, that's ROH. Da, 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 and we love it. So um, yes, exactly. Highlights of uh, James Gibson's matches are shown, kind of intercut with what's happening in the ring after the match. Uh, Whitmer raises both uh, Gibson and Roddy's hands, and all three men hug in the middle of the ring. Uh, the crowd then chants for a speech for from James Gibson. Gibson gets on the mic and he thanks everyone. He says Gabe Sapolsky resurrected his career and put a love of wrestling back in his heart. The crowd chants, we will miss you. And then Gibson says, I'll miss you guys too. He definitely seems at certain points in this promo to be getting a little emotional. Uh, he hopes one day he can come back to Ring of Honor and he calls them the greatest wrestling company in the world with the greatest talent and locker room. And then he starts screaming and putting over Roderick. He calls him the MVP. He, had this, he and then Roddy then walk back through the curtain together, and the camera follows them. We hear Prince Nana call Gibson the MVP and says he wants to give them something. Jimmy Rave at this point then attacks Roderick Strong, and he and Nana run away. Gibson checks on Strong and screams for help. He, you know, do we have a doctor? Somebody help him. And all this last part is an assumption on my part because it was in near total blackness backstage. And, uh, <laughs> You can hear what's going on. You can't see what's going on. And this ends up being Jimmy Gibson's last appearance in Ring of Honor, him screaming for someone to help Roderick Strong. A um, couple notes before we can kind of talk about James Gibson. The Observer wrote, the the idea of booking both undercards off the Kobashi weekend was that Kobashi would guarantee people would be happy. So the undercards were designed to expose new people, including Jimmy Yang, even though he lost to James Gibson and Christopher Daniels, and trying to elevate Matt Seidel, who beat Jimmy Raven in Philadelphia, and of course, Roderick Strong. Still, there's concern that they are pushing Strong to Ring of Honor title level, while at the same time he's doing TV jobs on Impact. So, Matt, we've talked about this before. Does anyone in Ring of Honor as a fan really care 
that Roderick Strong is jobbing an impact. Like, no. I, mean, I, I still feel like Dave was way too worried about this kind of stuff. Like, the question is, was Gabe also way too worried about it? That's my question. Because, yes, I definitely agree Dave Meltzer was. He was wrong. I mean, but was Gabe thinking about that stuff too? Roddy does get a big push. This, I mean, he's he you just won survival the fittest. He he's won a fair bit of matches. He's got he got to be the one guy to beat Matt Hardy out of the three times Matt Hardy worked in Ring of Honor. You know, he's about to enter a world title program with the new champ. I mean, he, he does he gets to beat James Gibson on the way out. He's getting a pretty big push. But uh, yes, I agree, Dave. I did like this line from Dave in the Observer. Dave wrote, James Gibson in his final appearance said Ring of Honor is the greatest wrestling promotion in the world and that the fans of Ring of Honor gave him back his passion for wrestling. And I guess he recognizes he's about to lose it again. But what, what, when you're, when you've got a family, you have to make these decisions. And then finally, uh, Wade Keller wrote, James Gibson, uh, worked his final match for Ring of Honor two weekends ago, and Ring of Honor booker Gabe Sapolsky tells the torch he will be missed. Quote, James Gibson was arguably our MVP this year, so Gabe, Matt, going against his own commentary. <laughs> <laughs> Gabe goes, he is such a great worker. He is one of the best transition guys in wrestling history. He is some, someone that every young wrestler should study because he does all the small things that really draw people into a match. His selling is out of this world. He's on a Ricky Steamboat level when it comes to small things and when to do certain things in a match. He gave us a lot of great matches this year, and my only regret is that we couldn't have had him for a couple of years. Uh, yeah, so I guess to talk about James Gibson a bit, I mean, yeah, he had a great run in Ring of Honor, and I do kind of agree with the vibe that Dave's talking about, but, like, it is what he had to do, this idea of, it was weird so much of this Gibson farewell run, including on this night, where he's talking about how, like, this gave my, you know, brought back my love of wrestling, it got my passion back, this is the greatest wrestling company in the world, knowing that he's going back to the company that I guess killed his passion for wrestling because i mean it's the place he left but like i get it you know like i'm not a person that blames wrestlers for that you have to especially once you have a wife once you have a family like you get it to a certain age and you can't just do this for peanuts anymore you can do that when you're 22 and don't have a family you can't do that when you're starting to hit 30 and hey, as, a, as a single guy without a family like you need to make money even if you're just for yourself right so like yeah i don't exactly. i don't I don't begrudge anybody. I'm actually curious to ask you because like, I think if, if people go back and listen to James Gibson's run on through the years, I am definitely higher on his matches overall than you are. Like I really thought a lot of his matches were super great. Um, the Danielson match. I love this match. I thought might've even been my favorite. I really liked the Joe um, match for the pure title. I really liked the four away from redemption a lot more than you. So overall, like, cause like I thought Gibson's run was phenomenal. Like not every match hit, but a lot of them did. What did you think overall? Um, I'm a little lower than Gibson than you and maybe others in this year, but I think like Gibson, I thought had a great run in ring of honor. The thing about Gibson would be to me is even when I, in matches where I didn't love the match, like as much as you, I I almost always thought they were at least pretty darn good. But even in matches I didn't think were great, I always thought James Gibson's performance almost always was really great. Like, even if the match wasn't quite on the level, I thought his personal effort level. And I feel like Gibson, he kind of became the poster boy, I would say, for the, the, like, the top end result when a guy gets released in WWE and goes to the indies. Because we've seen a lot of guys get released, and some guys, 
they retire immediately. They go, if I can't be in WWE, I don't care about wrestling anymore. I mean, we just see Nia Jax just said after WWE, she's like, I don't think I'm going to wrestle anymore. And we see other wrestlers where they maybe wrestle occasionally when it's in their area or when they get like a financial offer so big they can't say no. And we see a lot of wrestlers that they come out and they don't have a passion for wrestling after WWE. They either WWE killed it or they feel like that was the top thing. And so they look at everything else as a step below and they're still wrestling because it's something they can make money and they know how to do, but it's like the passion isn't there. Gibson is, I think one of the op, the, 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 the became one of the early examples of the opposite, which is a guy who came out of WWE and he had a chip on his shoulder and he was excited about the possibilities of what he could do in the ring afterwards. And it just became infectious. And I feel like so many wrestlers after this, like we'll talk about them in a few minutes, like Jimmy Yang, they'll get compared to Gibson. And I feel like it would do them a disservice because very few wrestlers would come out of WWE with the kind of just the momentum that Gibson, like, just the hunger he kind of tore at indie wrestling. Also, I think just Gibson is more talented than a lot of them. Like, yeah. like, like when Gabe says like he does the little things on a steamboat level. Like, I think probably a lot of people's first reaction is to scoff a little bit. Like, come on, Ricky Steamboat. But like, I don't know. I think it might be true. Like, he's he's so good, and he never got any other opportunity to show it, and that's a shame. But like, I'm really happy for him that he had that year where, where everyone gets to see. And to this day, people respect him as one of like the great wrestlers because of this one year in his life where he got to actually show it. And he is, this does have a bit of a Paul London type vibe to me where I am sad because it's like, I feel like I didn't get enough of him. Like, obviously I'm sad when any great wrestler leaves ring of honor, but like with Joe left or Danielson or whoever you go, well, we got a lot from them in ring of honor, you know, London and, and and Gibson are like two of the biggest examples of man. You know they left a law on the table in this company. You if know? Gibson had stayed, he probably would have had a pretty long title run. Yeah, and it's uh, and, and knowing that, and knowing now with the benefit of, of 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 hindsight that we've seen what happened, like knowing that they don't get ever get another opportunity like this in wrestling. Like when we talk, it, 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 sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say it makes it bittersweet. When we talk about guys, like you said, like Gibson, who like left WWE and then like really for the first time got to show like, oh, actually they're really good. Like you couldn't have known that from WWE. Who are some other names you think of? Actually, the one name that comes to mind for me, like first and foremost, is actually Trent Beretta. Um, as far as a guy who like in WWE didn't really get a chance to do much and then he leaves and it's like, oh, actually he's really good. Um, who are some other people you could think of that fit that category? Uh, that's a, that's a great one. Another one I would say would be Drew McIntyre when he went as Drew Galloway. I, I felt like if you watch his like evolve stuff, I mean, I don't think he's the, a talent on the level of James Gibson, but he's another guy that came out and you could tell he had a chip on his shoulder. He was going to book himself to places like PWG and evolve. And like, he had this idea, I think, or he's like, I'm going to prove I can hang with these guys. And he, you know, he ended up doing so well he got his job in wwe back and i i think that's a guy um i'm trying to think because there's gotta be a ton of examples i'm trying to think of them um i think there's not a ton of examples i think there's some but i don't think there's a ton fred rosser you know who was in in wwe you know i mean he was a guy you know who i think really got good after uh wwe like he's got he's working with new japan's u.s contingent now and uh He's getting really good reviews now as someone that just kept working at it. You know, I I feel like there are some wrestlers that once they leave, 
this is not quite what you were saying, but also, but like there are some wrestlers like WWE push them too soon and they start getting good right when WWE's already given up on them. Like Chris Master. So like, like Chris Master. That's what I was about to say. Yeah. Exactly. Like guys like that where, you know, it's it's almost a matter of like, are you going to keep growing? You know, like, are you are you just going to stick it out? Because like a guy like Chris Master, like I was going to say, like you just said, perfect example of, I, I wouldn't say he kept, he had like a great indie run, but there's a guy who he was starting to develop when it when it was when it was too late for him in WWE. Yep. Um yeah, so James Gibson, great run. Sad to see him go. Guy also just seems by the way, seemed to be universally beloved back. Like whenever I hear people in these like podcasts and shoot interviews talk about James Gibson, they almost to a man say like how nice a guy he was and how enthusiastic and how much of a booster he was of everybody like just Beloved guy backstage too. You just wish he didn't have that Ameri- that Confederate flag hanging around with him in so many of those classic matches. But yeah. <laughs> wh- I guess what can you do? <laughs> so uh, we cut to Gary Michael Capetta backstage in what I would call the world's most echoey backstage area, where he's joined by the Ring of Honor Tag Champs Sal Renaro and Tony Mamaluke. Tony says that they shocked the world and they're going to keep on shocking them. Sal says the tag division has been dis in, been in disarray, but they're going to bring it back to where it belongs. Uh, uh, he and Tony sing a little bit of We Are the Champions. I just wrote, Matt, holy shit, the audio was bad here. And I, I got to say something, Matt. Um, this is two back-to-back segments on this DVD where the production was just fucking dreadful. Uh, um. There are a lot of people like that that, that t- when they talk about indie wrestling, they don't like indie wrestling that looks indie. And to me, I don't mind. In fact, a lot of times I like that. I like the charm of indie wrestling. I think part of the charm is wrestling in high school gymnasiums. I, I like when it looks kind of janky and low rent. To me, that's part of the love of you're seeing like grassroots wrestling. That doesn't bug me. There's only two things in indie wrestling kind of indie things that bug me. It's when I can't because wrestling is an audio visual audio visual medium. It's when I can't see wrestling or when I can't hear wrestling. And the fact that Ring of Honor now has been around for over three years and we still have backstage segments where the lighting is so poor you can't see what is going on. And we have promo segments where the audio is so bad you can barely hear what they're saying. It's been over three years and and, and I feel like I got kind of mad watching this one because I just felt like this probably did not sell as well. As Joe versus Kobashi, this DVD obviously didn't, but I imagine it sold pretty well. I imagine a lot of people that bought Joe versus Kobashi, many of them probably thought, I might as well buy the other Kobashi DVD too. And the fact that on this DVD, this was probably a lot of people's first impressions of Ring of Honor, and you get back to back segments that are so unbelievably fucking low rent. Like I would have just if I, if I was Ring of Honor if I couldn't have reshot these I would have just cut them they're that bad I I, I would have just said because I would have thought to make a first impression on fans there's no way I'm letting them see these two segments <laughs> you know I'm I've become sort of numb to it but you're totally right there's really no excuse at this point for why they couldn't have better audio for promos like why they couldn't like have more quality control of being like all right let's go somewhere else where it doesn't sound like this I totally agree with you. 
Yeah, like I, I, I think maybe it was just the Kobashi thing and these two segments being back to back. But like, because otherwise, like you, I have grown a bit numb to it. But it, it just kind of woke me up. It was, and it also just reminded me it's been three and a half years of this. And Matt, I'll just say spoiler: next show we're gonna have another show where they didn't white balance the camera, so the one camera angle has completely different color tone than the other camera for the entire show. Like, oh boy, the fact that we're over three years in and we're still getting problems like that, it's just kind of insane to me but um next up we get clips of brian danielson winning the ring of our world title as a gay voiceover tells us brian will defend the title against austin aries at the next show entitled enter the dragon gabe says brian has sent open contracts all over the world and steve carino has answered one of them he will face the winner of brian and and austin aries for the title in buffalo so first uh couple big brian danielson title defenses are lined up Next up, we get a match that did not make the DVD. BJ Whitmer and Jimmy Jacobs defeat Lacey's Angels of Deranged and Izzy. So we'll get to a little bit more of this later. But apparently, um, they shot the angle in the ring where Lacey announced that Whitmer and Jimmy Jacobs were the new members of Lacey's Angels and then had an impromptu match where if Dick's Deranged and Izzy uh, lost, they'd be kicked out of Lacey's Angels. And apparently the match and the promo were ba- especially the promo were bad enough. They cut it from the DVD, and as we'll see later, they basically shot a new backstage promo redoing the angle. And and uh, we talked about the night before. Apparently, Lacey cut a promo on that show that was so bad that they basically they cut it and just showed a clip of it, but not didn't play any of the audio and had Gabe basically do a voiceover telling you the intent of the promo. So crazy stuff. Um. And that brings us to the next match we actually get to see, which is Colt Cabana defeating Jack Evans via pinfall in 10 minutes, 8 seconds after he hit a lariat. I thought this was good. I thought this was like the homicide Jack Evans match the night before, where mechanically there's there's some flaws to it. It's not a match that really has much in the way of psychology or or, or it's a match that is just – I, Matt, at this point, I don't think Jack Evans cannot entertain me. I think Jack Evans takes such a good beat, beating and his offense is so fun and he has so much personality that even in a match like this where it's kind of devoid of anything but those elements, it doesn't have any intangibles at all, I still at least go, oh, that was enjoyable. Like, I I, I, I had fun. I feel like this match was, was that. I, I It entertained me. Um, I also felt this was a match where each guy got to uh, play do play a bit of a role they don't often get to play. Um, Jack, one of the goofier characters in Ring of Honor, I felt like got to play almost a little bit of a straight man to Colt in the first couple of minutes. There's including there's a spot where uh, Colt it's basically Colt's making like him Jack like the Elmer Fudd to his bugs bite. Like there's a spot early on where Colt and Evans mirror each other into doing the same things until it comes time for uh to do a double kip up. And uh, Jack does his, but Colt can't do a kip up. So he asks Jack to actually like help him kip up, like grab my hand. And that's just suckering Jack in to like kick him in the back of the head. And it's like, again, it's Jack playing like the straight man to Colt's comedy and being like the, like the, the serious guy, which was funny. And then Colt, meanwhile, he gets to be a bit of a powerhouse that he doesn't, doesn't usually get to do because Jack's so light and, and, and bumps so big. Like, uh, he chucks Jack across the ring on a simple body slam. He almost like lawn darts him on it. He's able to turn a Rana attempted to just swing Jack's whole body into the ring post. He gets to do the old torture porn stretches that so many guys do against Jack Evans. Like, yeah, 
does the Billy Goats curse? And early Billy Goats curse the reverse kind of inverted Boston Crab on Jack, but he gets his uh bends him really hard forward, and he also does a a gory special where he gets on Jack's feet to touch the back of Jack's head for the second straight night. This happens to poor Jack Evans, and the crowd actually gives a very brief "That's disgusting" chant. Even like just standard spots like a big boot and a lair and the lariat finish seem like crazier spots because Jack takes such big bumps for them. Um, one flaw I did find the match other than the intangibles, man, I'll just wrap it up with this is I thought the end it's um the end of the match is a uh, cult taking off the elbow pad and going, you know, homicide and hitting a big lariat for the finish and I, I like that's, you know, trying to acknowledge the homicide feud and Lenny Leonard freaks out on commentary like that's homicides move, blah, blah, blah. My one problem was Colt had started using the Lariat as a finisher for a bunch of shows before the homicide feud started. Like he beat CM Punk with the Lariat. He beat Nigel McGuinness with the Lariat. So the idea of like, oh, Colt's using homicides move. Well, it was actually kind of had become his move, too. But I, that's one thing I thought was a little bit weird. But overall, I had fun watching this. I um I I had the same note as you did about the lariat call by Leonard. Like yeah, like it was yes he called out homicide, but no the move was not because of that. Like he did that he was doing that move. He was winning with that move. Um, as far as the match, um, I agree there was entertaining stuff, but I think your like of Jack Evans uh, exceeds mine at this point. Like I I like Jack Evans a lot. I think he's super entertaining. I think his selling is great. I think it was a lot of fun, but like. I don't know, like these, this match and the one before, there was just so much awkwardness, a lot of sloppiness. It actually got me to think like, maybe Jack Evans at this point was not up for having these singles matches. Like he was great in these tag team matches. And by like 2007, he was having some amazing singles matches. So I'm not saying he can't do singles matches, but like, I don't know. He felt like there was a lot lacking in his game at this point. And I don't know if he was just having an off weekend. I mean, obviously, you like the matches more than I did. But um, I don't know. There was something about it where it's just like, hmm, this guy doesn't seem totally ready for prime time in this particular role. And again, if you've listened to me, like, I love Jack Evans. I'm not trying to shit on Jack Evans. He's incredibly talented, incredibly charismatic, does some amazing stuff. But... I don't know. He just, he just didn't seem all there for these matches on this, on this particular weekend. Like there was, there was just a lot of like awkwardness. Like, you know, like he messes up a flip over the top rope, which again, like I'm not, he does some amazing stuff. I'm not saying he can't do it. Like I don't want this to sound like I'm saying Jack Evans isn't great because I think he is. But I just think on this particular weekend in 2005, if you show this match to somebody, they might say this guy was lacking a lot of the polish that you should have to be at a Ring of Honor level singles match. And I definitely saw him have great singles matches. Just, it was after this. It was like, like he had some great ones against Roderick Strong in 2007. He had some other good ones. But like, this at this point in 2005, he feels like a tag team or like multi-man match specialist to me at this point. And I don't think that you're being unfair at all. I think he was a very incomplete wrestler at this point. I've said this before about Jack Evans at this point in his career. Like, there are a lot of wrestlers, especially nowadays, where they're very well-rounded. Like, they're an 8 out of 10 about of, on, like, every aspect of wrestling. Jack Evans is always a guy, and I think even even he while he would get more well-rounded, I think he was always a guy where he had, like, things where he was, like, a 9 or a 10 out of 10. And there were some aspects of wrestling where he was, like, a 2 out of 10 or a 1 even. Like like throwing good convincing strikes he was 
terrible at them. And, you know, you see in these matches certain intangibles or just ways of structuring a match, not even intangibles, just like basic things like they're missing in these matches between Homicide and Cabana. And, you know, Homicide and Cabana are very good wrestlers. So, yeah, and uh, yeah, he was more suited to tags at this point just because you in those matches you could hide those flaws. Other people could bring the structure and then you could just tag in Jack and he could bring in all his positives. And yeah, you you see why he's more through the tags at this point in his career, at least in these two matches, even though because I have such a soft spot for Jack Evans and I feel like he's just like my wrestling version of just like pure brain candy where I just am always entertained by him. Even matches like this, I, I give like three stars to because I'm like, <laughs> yeah, it's still fun. Yeah. <laughs> but also there's that fun point in this match. How can you dislike a match where late in the match, he signals his, he's going to go for a 630 splash and he points to an imaginary watch on his wrist and he goes, my watch says 630. And, and like, I think some fans of the crowd are like, your watch is broken. Like, it's like the dumbest way to signal a move because it's, it's almost never going to be 630 when Jack Evans does that. But, um, <laughs> um, after the match, Julius Smokes comes out. And so I guess he's not that scared about Jim Cornette because apparently he can't interfere in the main event, but he can come out just randomly for a different match. And he gets on the mic and he calls, it says that Cole Cabana looks like Joe Piscopo on steroids. And I thought, that was already a dated reference, even for 2005. I was like, wow. Yeah. You know, he looks like Adam Sandler on steroids. I mean, that's the obvious comparison. <laughs> uh, Smoke says Homicide has a big match tonight in the main event. So tonight they're going to give Colt a free pass, so to speak. Um, but in the future, they say Colt's a dead man. So I appreciate they're trying to, while keeping them separate on this show, they're still trying to keep the feud between that cult finish and this. They're trying to let you know, like, hey, this feud's developing still. Um, that brings us to Christopher Daniels, scored to the ring by Allison Danger, defeating Jimmy Yang by submission in 12 minutes, four seconds, when Yang passed out in the Koji clutch. Uh, Matt, Jimmy Yang, you know, this is the second match we're seeing from him. He had a decent, I mean, it was a good match. It was not it was certainly not James Gibson, Roderick Strong, but it was enjoyable enough. What did you think about this? So in the match the night before, I thought that Yang would notice – what I noticed, he did a lot of these like spin kicks, like too many, and he seemed kind of winded. Like he didn't seem like his wind was all the way there for an ROH type of match. I guess what I would say for this one is I – he – he wasn't as one note as far as his offense. He didn't do all those like spinny kicks. Like he did a lot of other stuff. And I liked actually, I think I liked him better in this match, actually, his performance. I don't think the match was as good because I don't think Dan, you know, Daniels was as on point as Gibson was, but I thought Yang himself was better here. He definitely did still seem more tired than most of the guys do, um, in these matches. Um, but I thought it was okay. Um, Yang did do some cool spots. Like he did a a spot where he hits a running leg lariat, then and goes over the top rope, but skins the cat right back in. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, he does like a few more like like rest holds. He does, but he does like a flip off of Daniel's chest at one point, uh, which I liked. He um, he does this uh, he does this pretty cool spot where uh, so Daniel's does a back flip flip off the top rope to avoid Yang running at him, but Yang immediately runs up the ropes and hits a moonsault onto Daniels for two. 
Like, that was a very noticeably cool spot. Like, that's the sort of thing that will get you attention in ROH. Because he didn't really do a ton of that stuff in the first match. So, I actually thought that, um, that Yang did a good job. But as far as the match itself, you know, it wasn't super fast-paced. It was just very, you know, basic, like, building type of match into a couple of big near falls. And, um... And they actually, they did, they did protect Yang a lot because he actually passes out in the, uh, in the Koji clutch after fighting and fighting and fighting for a really long time. Uh, you don't see that too often in ROH at this point. So they were clearly, clearly trying to protect Yang. And I do think he comported himself better here, but I still don't think that there was like, I don't know, you're still comparing him to James Gibson. He's just not going to compare, you know, unfortunately. Um, but he does get a pretty nice round of applause after the match. It does seem like the crowd appreciated him. Whereas in the first match, I think everyone was really focused on Gibson. I thought that in this match, Yang had more chance to stand out. I don't think like Daniels overshadowed him or anything. And as far as Daniels goes, you know, you know, he's, he, I mean, he worked hard, but it didn't, it wasn't like a standout performance by him. So, um, overall, I thought it was an okay match, but I, I do think that Yang did a little bit better here. I, I thought I, I'm kind of with you on the quality of the match. I, I maybe didn't. I thought Yang to me didn't look that much better. Um, I, I thought this match was just okay. I mean, it, it's one of those matches where, like a lot of Daniels matches, where everything is kind of competent and like professionally done work, but it, there's just some. Jimmy Yang is missing something. There, there's a spot that kind of sums up. I feel like Jimmy Yang in ring of honor, at least in these matches on the first weekend where, um, fairly early on, or at some point in the match, uh, Yang goes to the outside with Daniels and he whips Daniels into one barricade, whips him into another. And the crowd's really into this. Daniels takes, goes to the barricade really hard crowd. It just likes, and you can hear the crowd starting to get up for it and, you know, they're getting more excited and the crowd starts chanting one more time, one more time. And Yang looks to the crowd for a second and he throws Daniels right back in the ring and just goes back to wrestling the match. And you can actually hear some people in the crowd boo him for a second. And to me, that's kind of like a microcosm of Yang where to me, sometimes watching these matches, it felt like there was an invisible wall between him and the crowd. Like he doesn't really like, sometimes he'll acknowledge the crowd a little bit and show a little bit of charisma for the most part. He really feels kind of, I don't know. There just seems, there feels like there's this, this disconnect emotionally between him and, everything else around him. And again, his, his he does, you listed the cool moves he does. He can do some really cool things. He is a good professional, professional wrestler. And there's nothing wrong about this match, but there's nothing that right about it. And I, and I thought the thing about this match is this was the semi main event of a show with Kento Kobashi. It's your second match in ring of honor. And I just felt like, like these two guys, not only is the match nothing special at all, like one, probably one of the least entertaining matches on the show. I, I felt like they weren't trying to have a, like sometimes a match isn't good, but you feel like, oh, they were trying to have a good match and it had these flaws. I felt like this match was exactly as good as they were trying to have. Like this match didn't feel like there was any ambition to it. It felt like, like a, like the kind of match you would see like on a random mid card, like, yeah, middle of a show on impact in the, during this era. So like it was a perfectly fine match and you wouldn't even say that's like a great match on impact it, on a random episode. And 
I just feel like on the semi main event of this show, they should have been aiming for a little bit more. Well, with uh, the, with the, see, I didn't really. So, like, yes, it was the second to last match, but they didn't get a ton of time. So I don't, I don't know if I would like. Yes, it was the semi main event, but I don't feel like they were put in like the semi main event position. It felt like you know the the second main event was strong versus was versus yeah. Gibson. So like it felt like almost like they were not given the chance to have that kind of a match. I guess is what I would say. Like the epic semi main event of a big show match. I felt like they were. This was m- meant to be mid card all the way, and. Yeah, I think they probably they could have done more for sure. It could have been a better match, definitely. But I I don't know that I don't know that they really had a chance to have the kind of match that you're thinking of. I guess is what I'm trying to say. I still think I I get what you're saying that yeah, they couldn't have like a absolutely show stealer, but I still think with 12 minutes they could have done more with 12 minutes even than what they did. It still didn't feel like that. Um, I've seen 12 minute matches where they go out there and they try and steal the show. It was not super uh, ambitious. I will. Uh, yes, you're right. It was not super ambitious. And I will also disagree a little bit about the finish. I do think Ring of Honor they were trying to really put uh, Yang over as because they were really saying like, oh, he passed out, he didn't tap out. But I do think like he ends up losing to a move that Daniels almost never wins. Like, can you remember another match that um, Christopher Daniels won with the Koji Clutch and Ring of Honor? No, but I think there was at least one like in the early days, but it's been a long time. <laughs> yeah, and, and so like in one hand, the finish, it, it does – it is trying to make him look good. Like they're trying to sell on commentary like, you know, R- Jimmy Yang's passion's been reignited just like James Gibson. You know, he wanted to win so bad in Ring of Honor, he wouldn't even give – you know, he wouldn't even submit. But at the same time, he lost to a move that like – Daniels uses all the time and almost no one loses to. So I, I was kind of like mixed on that even. But we don't really see um, much of Yang for a while after this, right? He's only like uh, he's only around here and there, right? And he loses a lot in Ring of Honor, like far more than usually like guys, free agents of his status would. Um, also during the match, a fan yells out, Alice in danger. What makes you so dangerous? Yes, that's and right. Classic. Yes, they stopped the match and it's tracks for that one. <laughs> yeah, the crowd not only laughs, the, the, like Daniels and Yang literally stopped the match for a second. And Allison goes over. I don't know what she says to the fan, but like you rarely see a match get disrupted by a fan comments. I mean, I mean, not it's not rare, but it, it, I would say this. It's rare in the sense of usually if, a, if the fans stop, it's because someone's like if the match stops, it's because like a fan's heckling somebody. This wasn't really a heckle. It was just someone talking to the manager and like Daniels and them could have ignored it, but they're like, they all stopped for a second. Like, okay, what the hell's going on here? And so I thought that was cute. But, uh, the torch wrote after the match, Jimmy Yang is one of the new additions to the ring of honor roster who has big shoes to fill as several strong workers, such as Gibson and Brian Spanky Kendrick depart. Sapolsky is happy with what he has seen so far from him. Quote, Jimmy Yang is going to be a very valuable member of the ring of honor roster. Sapolsky tells pre W torch. He is going to be a lot like James Gibson was earlier this year. He will find his passion for wrestling again in the ring of honor ring and produce some great matches. He already had two great matches last weekend against Gibson and Daniels. And that is just the start. And I, I this is what I was going back to earlier. Like, I don't think gangs running ring of honor, the way he performed would have been a success by any, no matter what you did, but man, oh man, is that doing him a disservice? They keep comparing him to James Gibson, which I know is a natural comparison because they came up together in WCW, but like, 
you're comparing this guy with the guy who just had this great run, who had like clearly had an insane amount of passion and saying like, they're trying to do the exact same push with, with Yang, like, Oh, he's rediscovering his passion. But by comparing it to Gibson, you just go, well, man, he's nowhere close to Gibson in terms of passion. Like, yes, totally. And also I just checked. So Yang has one match at the next show that we were going to review. And then he, then he doesn't appear again until, Late January in ROH, so he has a he has a run where he's really not wrestling much at all um, in ROH. I think he only actually, I think according to Cage Match, he has one, two, three, four, five, six matches total in the rest of the year two thousand five. So anywhere I'm talking about, not just in ROH. So he really doesn't really his ROH run doesn't really start until. Like January, February of two thousand five, of two thousand six, I should say. Yeah, huh. So it'll be interesting to revisit those matches because I think a lot of people would say that he probably already peaked with the Gibson match. But I mean, he does have some high, like interesting opponents coming up. But it'll be interesting to see how on rewatch if, if there's any hidden gems or if he the run really is as I remember it. But the feud that he has is with Jimmy Rave. Like that's like the one yeah. feud that he gets in ROH. Next up, will we cut to Lacey sitting backstage. This is the promo I talked about earlier. She is sitting backstage at a table with Izzy and Deranged for what she calls a very important meeting. She says they're in the boardroom of Lacey's Angels, which made me literally start laughing out loud. When well, I what a what her. a we what a crappy brick wall they have in this office building. Looks like almost like an arm. Looks like an armory or something. <laughs> Yeah, unless unless the boardroom of Lazy's Angels has brick walls, horrible lighting, and audible buzzing, probably from a so- nearby soda machine that is just off camera. Like, I, I don't think this is a boardroom. <laughs> uh, Lazy then talks about the pimply-faced nerds watching this at home, saying they'd walk over their mother's graves to give her one kiss. Lazy says the closest they'll ever get to her is their fantasies in a piece of tissue paper. Uh Lacey then calls Izzy and Deranged worthless and says they can't get the job done for her, so they're fired. Lacey then introduces the new Lacey's Angels, and BJ Whitmer and Jimmy Jacobs immediately attack them from behind. They lay out Izzy and Deranged. Lacey says she's going to make BJ and Jacobs, she's going to take them to the next level and make them the international superstars they can be. Jimmy says, we're going to Canada, baby. So that's what he thinks is international. BJ then cry, I mean, Lacey then critiques BJ's clothes and says he needs to start dressing better. So, uh, this really did feel just like musical chairs because they replaced BJ and, um, and and Jimmy as tag champs with another thrown together odd couple tag team in Sal and Tony Mamaluke. And now they're replacing Lacey's angels with, two, with BJ and Jimmy, but it's the exact same like gimmick. It's just, I'm going to take you guys to the top. You need to start dressing better. That kind of thing. Yeah. So like, this is clear, clearly like a makeshift, like half-ass thrown together thing, but I will say there's something about it that I liked. Um, and I think there's two reasons. It reminded me of like a really bad like film that like a bunch of like high school sophomores make for their first ever thing they do for like a film club or something where they're like, yeah, have a care. Okay. We're going to sit at a table and we're going to be a boardroom. Like just like where they just like really have no idea how to make anything seem like realistic. But it also like in some weird way reminded me of like really old WWF where they would have like angle shot outside the ring, like sitting at a table. Like, we're like, we'll do a contract signing or something, like, like with Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior or Hogan and 
Andre the Giant or something like that, where they're just sitting in an office at a table. I just like there was something charming. You don't see enough backstage angles these days where people are sitting at a table, and I just it just it just warmed my heart. Matt, you're always chanting, we want tables at shows, but for a completely different reason <laughs> than right. everybody else. That's right. I want them backstage. I want people sitting at them, <laughs> hands folded across them. That's what I want. You're like, look at the grain of this. Wood. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that brings leaves us with the main event, the unforgettable part of Unforgettable, apparently, probably. Homicide and Kenta Kobashi defeated Loki and Samoa Joe in 27 minutes, 36 seconds, when Kobashi pinned Loki after a burning lariat. So story of this match, first we'll go to the Observer. On October 2nd in Philadelphia, it'll be Kobashi and Homicide versus Joe and Low-Key. The idea of Kobashi versus Low-Key, an original plan, was nixed because of the size difference making it hard to work a match in the sense they can work together. But Noah, Kobashi's a legend and Loki is a, just a junior heavyweight undercard guy. So how much can he give him? In a tag, they can work it better with the idea of a heavyweight and a junior heavyweight on each team. Even though New York has the better match and Philly is the bigger building, their hands were tied because Low-Key is booked in England on October 1st. Gabe Sapolsky's attitude on Kobashi was to give people the best possible singles and tag match and not worry about fitting it into the storyline since Low-Key and Homicide are usually a team and Joe usually feuds with them. And then Ring of Honor actually wrote – this is the part of Ring of Honor – well, one of the many parts – of this era, I love. We talked about this before. How Gabe would try and go the extra mile to justify things that a lot of promotions wouldn't. So Gabe actually wrote this, or had someone write this, probably Gabe, on the Ring of Our website just to justify this dream match. He wrote, August twenty fourth. A lot of fans are wondering why Loki and Samoa Joe are teaming to face Key's normal partner of Homicide and Kenta Kabashi. We are now going to take you through the process right here in the Ring of Honor Wrestling newswire and give you the inside scoop. Ring of Honor officials were faced with the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to book a legend like Kenta Kobashi. The goal was to put Kobashi in the best possible matches that were true to Ring of Honor's roots. Samoa Joe was the obvious and most popular choice to face Kobashi. Ring of Honor officials were quick to suggest this match to Noah and, and WLW officials. All parties immediately agreed to this dream match for October 1st in New York City. Ring of Honor officials then looked for another heavyweight that could wrestle Kobashi in Philadelphia on October 2nd. However, none were available that could fill the role except for Samoa Joe. First off, sick burn to Nigel McGinnis. Anyway, there was a reluctance to do the, the same match with Samoa Joe twice. Ring of Honor officials then looked at juniors, but were told by current NOAA wrestlers and various officials and experts that it is okay to match Kobashi up with a junior, but it should be a tag to include a heavyweight for the best possible match. It was strongly suggested that Kenta Kobashi be, would be best in a tag match pitting a junior and a heavyweight versus a junior and a heavyweight, which is frequently done in NOAA. Loki was an obvious choice to wrestle Kobashi since Key is a regular in Noah and has wrestled Kobashi before. Key knows how to take Kobashi to the limit. Ring of Honor officials then looked for the junior that best matches up with Key and Joe. The name Homicide was immediately mentioned. However, Homicide and Key are on the same regular team and they both hate Samoa Joe. How could this possibly work? Ring of Honor officials called all three men on a conference call and explained the situation. All three men saw that, that this was an opportunity to put on a special match true to their roots and the roots of Ring of Honor. Joe Homicide and Key agreed to put their differences aside for one night only so this dream match can take place. Homicide and Key also said they have no problems fighting each other and this will be like the old days when they used to compete against each other frequently. No one WLW officials then agreed upon the match. So... I, I appreciate, Matt, that they went to that level of trouble to be like, look, 
this is why these guys are wrestling in this configuration. Right. Whereas they really didn't need to do any of that. Right. And people would have just accepted yeah. it without question, but yeah, they, they, but they did it anyway. Yeah. That is, that's nice. That attention to detail showing that you actually give a shit. Cause like so many bookers don't. And you know, they actually, I imagine a lot of what they wrote there was true. Like just, they, they, it seems like they were kind of forthright about like, look, Noah wouldn't want Kobashi working low key because, how much can Kobashi give Loki in the way Noah likes to do things? You know, but if we put Joe in there too, then everyone can kind of sell for each other. So, um, so about this tag match, it's, it's a crazy thing that, um, Joe versus Kobashi was so amazing. I feel like you can take a step down and still not even be good, but be pretty damn great. And that's the thing, like, is this, this match is completely overshadowed by Joe versus Kobashi. Is it close to Joe versus Kobashi? No. But Joe versus Kobashi was so good. I would call this match like four and a quarter stars. This is my second favorite match of the weekend. It's just a barely ahead of, um, Gibson strong. And it's a great match. Um, so it's funny, even though it is ironically forgotten, it is great. And also what I'll say is after the like last night, there isn't much story to this match. It's mostly just a battle. They did show some, they, they did no dissension during the match. They did have eventually Loki and G Joe accidentally hit each other near the end of the match. But I did like, they didn't really try and do, they, they, they wrestled a serious match and didn't work in like weird miscommunication spots. Other than that, like they did have Joe and key stare each other down from across the ring during entrances, but they got along fine during the match. But what I really liked about this match was I felt like they had a really, they hit the perfect blend of mixing highlights from Joe versus Kobashi while also doing new stuff. Because even though they could have gotten away with this, I feel like if you've watched Joe versus Kobashi, there's enough new stuff in this match where you won't feel like it's just a retread. But at the same time, if you were a fan like live in Philly that didn't get to go see Joe versus Kobashi, I feel like you would have gotten all the biggest hits of the things they two did to each other. Like you get Joe getting dropped on his head with the super su- sleeper suplex. You get Joe doing the early to elbow suicide to Kobashi to really set the tone. You get Kobashi throwing a gajillion chops to, to Joe. You get Joe getting a big near fall on Kobashi with the muscle buster. Like all the biggest highlights of their singles match, they redo here. But at the same time, they do different things. Like early on, they do a callback to the match the night before where Joe gets Kobashi against the ropes right at the start, just like their, their singles match. And instead of slapping in the face like the previous night, he just lets him go. And then Kobashi returns the favor where he gets Joe against the ropes. And just like the previous night, instead of chopping him, he lets him go. So it's like shown, oh, they have respect for each other now. Like they've, they've grown. And I like little callbacks like that, you know? Um, and they, and they break out some new stuff like Kobashi, uh, um, gets dropped on his head with a goddamn backdrop driver from Joe. Um, Kobashi breaks out the orange crush bomb and like his power bomb into the, like the jackknife bridge hole. Like he, he does some things in this match. You don't see the night before. And so that's really neat. And I also just like, this is one of those matches where the talent level so high, every combination is fun to watch. Like even I would say the combination I was least excited for was homicide and Joe, just because we've seen that combination so much, but they had really fun exchanges in this match. And, um, I also even really love, like, I love low key in this match because he's obviously trying his ass off 
And even though he gets a decent amount of offense, he's in a position he is rarely in where he's the guy here that's here to kind of get his ass kicked of the two guys on his team. And he's the guy to take the fall. And I love the kind of contrast between him and Kobashi because Kobashi is just about, you know, at this point in his career, just the big bruising heavyweight hits hard, you know, not super mobile. And Loki is this guy who's got this offense that is almost, for lack of a better word, like pretty. It's very elegant, and sometimes it can be very, like, showy. And m- one of my favorite spots in the match shows that contrast where um, Key is going for the big, I forget if it's the title rush or the title crush, where he does, like, the big cartwheel, like, springboard from one corner all the way to the other corner of the ring, and it ends with a big kick. So he does this big, intricate, like, Car, you know, like handspring all the way across the ring. And just as he finishes it and he's going for the kick, Kobashi just throws one chop and hits him right in the fucking neck. And it just stops him. And it's like, it's like a, such a, right in that one spot, like shows you the difference between these two men where one guy, incredible athlete doing this really in, beautiful thing. And that guy's just like, I'm going to hit you hard once and just kill you. And I just love that spot. It almost made me start laughing when I saw it. And, um, it's it's a great match again. Not a ton of story to it. The one my one flaw for, to this match, Matt, I would say, is I'm wondering if you agree. They do give you a decent amount of Joe versus Kobashi in this match, but I felt like the end of this match they could have had one more Joe versus Kobashi exchanged until before the finish because it felt like the last few minutes were more about like low key than Joe and Kobashi, and obviously it, Kobashi and and. Key end up getting isolated alone in the ring, and Kobashi finishes off Key, while Joe and Homicide are found on the outside. But I felt like the way they paced the match, I wanted one last emphatic, like, Joe versus Kobashi exchange in the final minutes, and we don't really get that. But overall, great match, great tag match, really fun. Crowd was into it. You know, the crowd this whole night, they were loud. They were nowhere close to New York crowd, but that's an unfair comparison because different building, different, you know, acoustics, everything. But everything about this match, I would say, not Joe versus Kobashi level, still great. Yeah, as far as the ending, um, I didn't think of that. But, like, yeah, I mean, that would have been really cool to, like, do, like, one final, like, epic showdown. Um, as far as the crowd noise, yeah, I don't think I, you can overstate how important that room was to the sound of Joe versus Kobashi. Like, I've been in that room three times. That's a really special sound in that in that room. I don't know, like, if Joe versus Kobashi had been in Philly, like, with that those same people. I don't know if it would have sounded that way. So I think you have to put a little bit of emphasis on the the place, the, like the room that they were in. Um, as far as this match and comparing it to Joe versus Kobashi, like yeah, you're, this is not going to be the epic battle of the titans that that was, right? It's impossible. Um, so they got to do something different, and they did do something a little bit different because this match was longer. It had more room to play, I think. Like, if you think about it, and I don't mean this as a criticism because obviously that match was incredible, but like, Joe versus Kobashi was so deadly serious, right? Like, it was just like, this is the most serious, intense thing we have ever seen. There's really no moments of levity or like even really much in the way of like character work other than like the storyline they were going for in the match, right? Mm -hmm. In this match, Kobashi even got to play a little bit. You know, and like they got to, so they, so they had these big intense exchanges, but they got to sort of slow down a little bit and be like a little bit more playful, I think. Um, 
So it's actually, you get a lot more of like Kobashi being Kobashi in this match than you did in Joe versus Kobashi. I felt like that was very like singly, narrowly focused on what they were trying to do. Um, like as far as comedy, like to me, it starts right at the beginning because Gabe, as Jimmy Bauer joins commentary and he goes, I may have been fired as an announcer, but you better believe I'm going to be in the booth to call a Kent- Kenta Kobashi match. And I'm like, well, okay, good to know that if you're fired, you could still decide to just come to the job sometimes. Um, <laughs> it's like George on Seinfeld when he got fired and then he just tries <laughs> to show back up in the boardroom the next week. And they're like, is that Costanza? <laughs> um, <laughs> that actually happened to me once in school when I was a kid, not to go off on a tangent. No, I need like, to hear um, I need to hear this. So um I was a very good kid at school. I got high grades, I was in like gifted class. Uh, sometimes I was a nerd. Um I mean sometimes. I know I, I know this is shocking to people, but um I could do some athletic stuff too. But anyway, um I was a kid that was definitely afraid of ever getting in trouble. Like um I, I, uh, I, I didn't miss school once I was sick until once I collapsed and they had to like, my mom had to be like, you can't go to school. And I was like, I gotta go to school. Like that, that's how good a kid I was. So you like, you like to get the perfect attendance award at the end of each school year. So yeah. And I ended up losing that, but, uh, God damn it, Matt, old wounds. Anyway. <laughs> so th- there, there was this time where there was this thing where like, um, if you got in trouble, you were you got a certain number of strikes and this kid kept picking on me and eventually I would retaliate and somehow he this kid had the, the habit of I would he would not get caught and I would get caught and there was like three strike rule and three the third strike was when you got in trouble and the third strike was we're going to give you this pink sheet of paper you have to take it in after school you're getting detention and then we're going to call your parents too and um it happened and I got freaked out and I was thinking the whole the whole day like Oh God, they're going to call my parents Then I'm going to get, you know, I'm going to have to go detention. I've never gotten detention in my life, all this stuff for a week and all, blah, blah, blah. So at the end of school, I decide, well, what if I just don't show up? <laughs> well, what if I just go home and I just pretend this never happened? And I did that. And I went back the next day and no one mentioned it ever again. No one called my parents and I never got detention. The people, the teachers just looked at me. They acted like I had done it. And I just, it, it was it was as if I did it, and they just did not care. Like it was fantastic. Sometimes teachers, they're just like, you know what, this is not worth get putting in extra effort for. So I think that's probably you were such a good kid. I'm sure that's what it was. What grade was that? Uh, this was grade three, I believe. Okay, yeah, yeah. You're just you're a little good little kid. They're like just like whatever. He's learned his lesson. That's what they probably thought, or they just yeah. forgot. They maybe they just actually forgot. I think that's possible. They have too. no idea, like the sweaty dreams I was having that night. Like, no, no, this is going to ruin my life. And then I just show up to school the next day, and it's like I'm not in trouble. Like, you don't remember what happened yesterday, Trevor? <laughs> Trevor? Like, Trevor? Don't get too comfortable. That other shoe is still going to drop. Oh god! They're going to call your. They're going to call your mom possibly on Monday. Oh Jesus! <laughs> How would you react if that happened? If your third grade teacher just called your mom and said Trevor didn't come to detention. 30 years ago i would actually still feel bad i'd be like yeah i don't know if my mom knows this story thank god she doesn't listen to this podcast because she's a good sensible relative but like i i would feel that there's actually a worse story that i was going to tell earlier about a different thing you know what i might as well do it you know what we have some time i'll just tell i was gonna tell let's do we got all the time in the world trevor 
this this is this is another dumb complete off dumb story but i was gonna i was thinking about this with the jim Cornette thing where we were talking i I was gonna bring this up to you matt how weird is it like isn't it weird we were talking about like the jim Cornette paul bearer thing and they've done this in wrestling before like the idea that you bring out like a shitty a, a surprise that's purposefully shitty with the idea that when we bring out the real debut or the real surprise it'll make it even bigger like i was thinking matt how would you feel if you were like paul bear where you know you're being brought out and like the point is like we're kind of thinking you're going to disappoint the fans. So that'll make the real person like, like I feel like that's kind of my position in life. And so it got me thinking of a time in my life. I actually kind of did that to somebody. And it's like, well, my biggest shames of my life where it's not exactly the same, but I had the same mindset. So uh, my first serious girlfriend, uh, it's Valentine's day. We both had some, some turbulence and not just our relationship, but we both had different bad things in our own separate personal lives that we were, we were both in rough places as people. And I didn't think I was going to be able to, for a variety of reasons, go see her for Valentine's day. But at the last second, I realized I could. So I decided to basically do a ring of honor, Paul Baron, Jim Cornette, which was, I'm going to purposely disappoint my girlfriend and that's going to make the surprise even better. So I'm going to do the movie thing where I'm going to say, I'm going to call her up. And I'm going to go, honey, I, I can't make it to Valentine's Day. I'm so sorry. I wish I could. And then while I'm on the phone, I'm going to like buy candy or, or, you know, while I'm calling her back and forth or whatever. And I'm then on one of the calls when I'm saying we can't do it, I'm going to knock on her door. And she's going to be there waiting for me. Uh, and she's going to open the door and go, sorry, honey, I'm going to, you know, I have to t- answer the door and I'm going to be on the phone, just like in the movies with, with like the, and she's going to be so happy. So Matt, I'm so embarrassed saying this. I start saying this, right? I, I start doing the thing where I'm like, um, so I can't do it, honey. Like, you know, blah, blah, blah. And she just starts crying and she just starts going, this is uh, the worst thing, like of all the things. And she starts going through like all the horrible things that have happened to us. And I go start going, Oh no, what have I done? And so now she is on the phone, like just bawling her eyes out. And I am like running to stores, trying to buy chocolates and flowers and being like, no, yeah, it is horrible, but you know, we'll get through this. We'll get through this. Cause I'm still trying to preserve the surprise. And like, I finally get to her door and she opens it up and she's got like mascara running down her cheeks. And I'm like, ah, surprise. Like, Hey, it's a fun surprise. <laughs> and like, she was happy, but we like broke up two months later. <laughs> so I'll just say, don't try and do the Paul bear disappointment surprise in real life, because it is one of my, my biggest regrets of life that I ever did that. Don't try to do the pallbearer disappointment surprise. That's good, good advice in a relationship. Trevor, I'm sorry that happened to you. I, um, but I'm glad that you shared that with the listeners, with the deep vein thrombozos. I feel like you're, you're really opening up to all of us. And, uh, I think it means a lot. Yeah. And, uh, and I hope she's, li- and I, and I, and I, and I hope she's listening. Um, so, oh so Kobashi, um, <laughs> uh, uh, as far as, uh, the, yeah. <laughs> No, as far I'm as sorry. no, no, I loved it. I loved it, and I'm you know I, I love that you're sharing. Not that I love that you broke up two months later. That's you know, and you know what? I still think that it was a good idea, Trevor. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, maybe not. Um, so um, yeah. So uh, you know what? One thing I liked about this match um is that um, 
<laughs> I have ruined this part. <laughs> no, no, you made it so much better. This um, is the final through the years, along with the final ring of fire. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, so, um, one thing that I found very entertaining about this match is that whenever, like, they did stuff with Joe or Loki against Homicide, and, like, Homicide was poking Joe in the eyes, and they were doing some of the classic spots with each other, Kobashi is just standing there, like, just watching this, like, standard but good ROH match. Like, I thought that was, like, just kind of amusing to me. Like, oh, Kobashi's just standing there watching, like, Samoa Joe against Homicide in ROH <laughs> and listening to the chants and stuff. It's like, it must have been weird for him. That said, every time he did come into the ring, my blood absolutely curdled every time he chopped anybody. Like, I, I found that very amusing. I also like that, like, for a little while in the early part of the match, Homicide and Kobashi were almost like the de facto heels. Like, Homicide threw Loki out to the floor and Kobashi, like, attacked him on the floor, which is, like, heelish, you know, and then he DDT'd Loki on the entrance ramp and you could see Smokes watching from behind the curtain. And I just like to think in kayfabe terms, like Smokes is like, oh, I wish I could get involved right now, but I don't want to lose a thousand dollars. But actually, he was probably just watching the match. Um, but yeah, I thought I just thought it was fun watching Kobashi just like do different stuff. I also liked um, Homicide and Kobashi doing teamwork. Like Homicide had Loki in a camel clutch, and then Kobashi chopped Loki in the camel clutch. Kobashi and Homicide is just such like an interesting team, like visually. And I, I really appreciated that. Um, uh, the only actual negative that I had in the match is very minor. And I, you know, cause, you know, I, I know I, what you said about the final spot with Joe and Kobashi makes sense to me. I didn't think of it, but was, um, when, um, Homicide, um, sent Loki to the floor and then he went for the tope, but Loki stopped him with a big kick and the crowd went crazy for it. But the camera basically missed the kick. Like you could yeah. see the camera like moving over to try to catch it, but it just doesn't get there in time. So you hear the crowd go nuts for something that you don't really see. And that doesn't happen too much in ROH because obviously because they edited in post-production. But I guess none of the cameras had a good shot of it. Um, but um, the, there was another thing where um, Loki, uh, he stopped the sunset flip attempt with a double stomp. So Kobashi came in and jumped Loki. And then that brought in Joe, who kicked the crap out of Loki and insecurity him in the corner. And like at that point, it felt like you know Kobashi was the heel. Like it doesn't last like that at that point. But during that during that spot, we get our second ever Ring of Honor. This is awesome chant. It's fun to be able to track these. Like the first two were both involved in Joe versus Kobashi matches. So fair enough. Um, but you know, then you know the match you know keeps going. They they do a lot of. Big spots. Homicide gets a swinging DDT on Loki and Leonard notes that is the second DDT Loki took in the match because the first one was on the ramp. And I was thinking about it. I was like, hmm, you know, maybe Loki didn't sell that ramp DDT enough, but, you know, who cares? Um, uh, you know, the, I, I also – I did enjoy that we actually did get to see Homicide versus Loki because that was a match that Gabe kept trying to book and he couldn't <laughs> for various reasons. So I'm glad we at least got this. And I thought there's – on commentary when he sees that he goes we've waited three and a half years to see this and i have thought that's like gabe the booker saying that like you can yes. tell he's like finally you fucking asshole <laughs> yes this. Like, yes and, and key you know like he does the tree of woe double stomp to homicide which obviously the crowd went nuts for um 
uh, when Kobashi finally gets gets back in and gets like the baby face version of the hot tag, he goes nuts on Joe with the big chops, like the machine gun chops. Then Loki comes in to break it up, so Kobashi puts Joe uh, Loki in front of Joe and machine gun chops him. Then he throws Loki out and continues to machine gun chop Joe some more. And he actually finishes this time with spin chops instead of like the, the two-handed like he did in the singles match. And Lenny Leonard says that he counted for me. There were 71 chops altogether. That's a lot. <laughs> 71 chops. Um, but like you said, they take turns doing suplexes. Kobashi hits the sleeper suplex. He hits the half Nelson suplex on Loki. Uh, uh, Joe gets the backdrop driver on Kobashi. Like just so much fun stuff. It's just like they're just having a lot of fun here. And in fact, like, you know, it's natural that you want to compare it to Joe versus Kobashi, and obviously it can't ever be that level. But I think the match that actually is the more natural comparison is the Liger tag team match. Liger and – it was Liger and Joe against Danielson and Loki. And that match was great too, but I think this one was better. I think Kobashi went harder than Liger yeah. did. You know, all you know, all the other guys are working hard, but like the stiffness, the uh, you know, the the crowd intensity. I think these are two great matches. I think this match was greater, and I yeah, I agree with you. This was a a really great match. It's just it wasn't that epic, special, like unbel- I mean, it was still special because it's Kobashi, but like it just it didn't have that atmosphere that the first one had. And like I said, a singles Clash of the Titans is always going to beat a tag team match yeah. of teams that are not like established tag teams, you know. So, um, so it was a great match, though. Like they, you know, Kobashi really did do a great job too. Like he, he, re, like he did a great job in that singles match, but he really worked his ass off in this match too. Like even taking that taking that backdrop driver was was a pretty big deal, um, I think, for a guy coming in to work in front of eight hundred people in an armory. So props to him, and everybody else was great as you would expect. So this was an excellent, excellent match. I think you kind of alluded to this, but when you were talking about before, um, like. The, the this match being maybe a bit more like playful and fun like did it seem like just kobashi and joe was a little bit more loose here because i almost feel like it was like the first night you know joe versus kobashi when he comes out you can see he's kind of shocked by the reaction i feel like this night he kind of now knows like hey you guys like me like yeah and he, t- you, and he you takes his time shit, aren't you? and he takes his time on the entrance milks it a little bit more so like yeah totally like yeah he was much looser and the match was looser and you know it was good in that way you don't want the same thing twice and this was i think exactly what it needed to be and also also i'm really sorry about what happened with you and your girlfriend on valentine's oh, day God. <laughs> look she's probably doing way better now don't worry she doesn't have um, she doesn't have a podcast <laughs> I, I i can say i know at least one of my ex-girlfriends has tried to listen to the show based on things you've told me about certain <laughs> where where listeners are coming from but it was not this girlfriend um no it was me i just went to that place and listened just to trick you you son of a bitch <laughs> <laughs> you don't stay away from I, w- I went all the way to canada and didn't even come visit you I should have actually um, called you on the phone and told you I couldn't come visit and then shown up at your door. <laughs> um, but yeah, there were some, there were some cool spots in this match. Like, uh, Joe and Key double team kicking Kobashi in the corner. It just felt cool to see, like, Joe and Key working together for once. Like, that was kind of a cool moment. It's a long time Ring of Honor viewer. Um, there was a moment where Key had Kobashi in like a standing crucifix armbar, and Homicide hits Key with a neckbreaker while he's doing that, which I thought was really cool. Uh, one other note: 
they mentioned this on commentary. Gabe says that Homicide's shoulder is severely injured, and we do see it's all taped up, and he needs time off, but he refused to miss this match. And I have to think that's probably true, because I do know that Homicide, like, in the news bits for the upcoming shows, like, Homicide, they do start talking, like, in the newsletters about Homicide's shoulder is completely thrashed. So and he doesn't really take significant time off for years. <laughs> so, yeah. like, yikes. Because I think this was also the time when TNA was starting to show interest in him, so it was one of those positions where it was like, well, I should take time off, but I'm in a position in my career right now where I really feel like I can't, and so... The wrestling business just doesn't allow it. I mean, who knows what his health insurance situation was? You don't get paid if you don't work. Like, like it's just like, ugh, it sucks. I don't like capitalism. <laughs> I mean, I mean, that in itself, that kind of sums up why a guy like James Gibson would leave Ring of Honor, even though he's saying like how much he loves this, because there's an example right there. WWE, maybe it's not everything you dreamed of, but if you get hurt, you're not gonna have to worry about like how you're gonna pay your rent that month. Whereas an indie wrestler is like, you lo- if you have to cancel five bookings, you're not getting paid for those five bookings. So. At, le- at least back when WWE used to honor their contracts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back when it wasn't just random. Okay, so maybe we'll have to say like AEW instead of bringing, yeah, yeah. I mean WWE. But uh, yeah. so a couple of notes from the newsletters. The Observer, uh, Dave wrote, because of all that has been happening, I finally got a chance to see the October 2nd Ring of Honor show from Philadelphia this weekend, along with a lot of other Ring of Honor. The Kenta Kabashi and Homicide versus Samoa Joe and Low Key match is one of those bouts that never got its due because the Kobashi Joe match the night before was such a spectacle. I wouldn't call it a tag match of the year, even in the U.S., but it wasn't far off that level. Roderick Strong and James Gibson had a great technical match on the show. Both bouts were four stars, and actually the tag was well above that. Uh, PW Torch wrote, Regarding the two matches, Kenta Kobashi wrestled for Ring of Honor two weekends ago. Ring of Honor booker Gabe Sapolsky tells the PW Torch he was pleased, quote, they were classic Kenta Kobashi matches. It was one of the highlights of my career to be able to see, to, to see main event quality Kenta Kobashi matches in a Ring of Honor ring. It was just unbelievable and something that can never be duplicated. He says Kobashi was happy with his Ring of Honor experience. He had a great time in Ring of Honor and was an extremely nice guy. So after the match, Kobashi and Homicide hug. Homicide wakes up Key by pouring some water on him, and Kobashi helps him to his feet. The crowd gives individual chants for all four wrestlers at different points. For the second straight night, uh, the fans chant Arigato. Kobashi and Joe shake hands for the second straight night. Kobashi bows to the fans for the second straight night. Joe gets on the mic, and he calls Philadelphia the birthplace of Ring of Honor, and he talks about how they just made a stand for pro wrestling in this ring. Uh, Joe puts over Kobashi and pro wrestling Noah and says they and Ring of Honor are pro wrestling. He and Kobashi shake hands again, and Joe bows to and thanks Kobashi in Japanese. Joe says they have a tradition in the States, so hit my man's music. Um, Kobashi's theme plays. As he gets to soak in, more cheers all alone the ring as everyone else leaves. He's very smiley. He's waving to the fans. Even Homicide and Key bow to Kobashi from the entrance, and Kobashi makes a point to raise Homicide's arm on his way out. The cameras follow Kobashi back through the curtain into that backstage area for a few seconds, and that's how the show ends. Uh, Matt, that was unforgettable. I had forgotten some parts of the show, but <laughs> it is an enjoyable show. So one thing I want to ask you, Matt, it's about the main event and the show as a whole, since this is the time we usually talk about how we feel about the show. Do you feel like like I enjoyed the show? And in some ways you could argue parts of it are better in the sense like um, 
both shows have great Kobashi main events. I would say Strong Gibson is clearly better than anything else on the undercard of the first night or the rest of this night. So in that sense, Unforgettable has that advantage. But I would still say the first night is better just because the atmosphere is so special for the whole night. I felt like there was more energy even in some of the matches on that night. But uh, the thing I want to ask you is, do you think if we watch this show first and this tag match first, even would we have liked it even more like, like, like just having to follow Joe versus Kobashi, the show and the match. Does that in, in a way, does that make it an unfair comparison almost? I mean, it happened second in real life. Yeah. So I don't think it's an unfair comparison. Um, no, I mean, some things, some nights are just special. And Joe versus Kobashi was a special night, and it, it, it bled throughout the entire night. You know, this show had you know that main event was still special because it was Kobashi Gibson's last night was special, but the rest of the show you know didn't feel that special. Like I and I think I even liked the, a lot of the undercard matches less than you did. The only real undercard match that I really felt strongly positively about, besides Gibson versus Strong, was the uh, four way. I liked and that was pretty short. So I thought that the undercard was a lot weaker. Uh, other than those two match, this was a really strong two match show. Like they were two really excellent matches, which to me makes this a very easy recommended show. But up and down, it was not as entertaining, and the vibe it was not as good. I don't think that it's say- saying like, oh, just it's not fair because we watched the better show first. Like, yeah, of course it'll always you'll you know if you watch a better show first, the the, the less good show would always look weaker. But I still think on the strength of the two good matches, this was still a good show. Yeah, I mean, two great matches. Like, it is worth this getting watching the show just for those two matches alone. Because first off, that's that's about a third of the show right there between those two matches. Right, they're but, each, they're each about half an hour. Yeah, but but also they're great, and I think they're, having two of those on one show, I think that makes it an easy recommend. And so that is the show. So plugs. Uh, remember, we were on an honorable mention. If you want to check that out, it'll be on their feed in one of the newest episodes. It'll be marked. It's right there for you. If you want to contact us through the years at gmail.com, T H R O H for through, uh, on Twitter at Trevor Dame and at Mayor MGF. We have a thread on the ProWrestlingOnly.com plugs forum. And, uh, yeah, next time on the show, Matt, we have spent three shows. He won the title, and then he vanished for the next three shows. We explained why on previous shows. But finally, Matt, a new era for Ray of Honor and for Through the Years starts. Our boy is finally coming back because on the next three years, we will enter the dragon. We will get inside Brian Danielson. Um, <laughs> 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 he will take on Austin Aries for the Ring of Honor World title. He will begin his title run. Can't wait to enter that dragon. I, you know, I, I did. I didn't know this was in my future, but you know, I'll. I'll it's okay. I'm into it. Let's do it. We're, we're going to do one of those things actually, where we like shrink down into like a tiny capsule form, and Brian swallows oh. us, and we just do the podcast from like Osmosis Jones. Exactly. Exactly. That, 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 that that's what you meant. Point. It wasn't. It wasn't sexual at all. It was. We're going to be. Uh, we're going to just like <laughs> enter him as little miniature creatures to explore his his the different like digestive system and immune well, system. Well, actually, and... it is sexual too because it's going to be a suppository. Oh. Um. Anyway, <laughs> what a show this has been. Oh, way too much stuff. Unfo- um... Unforgettable, Trevor. <laughs> So uh, I hope everyone enjoyed the show. We will, even though Ring of Honor may not be coming back, we will be coming back. 
and we will be here to recount. Ring of Honor will live on through us. So that until then, until next time, have a good time. Have a great time.